Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks. And of course, we couldn't do it without the Hall of Famer himself, your friend and mine, Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Ho, ho, frigging ho. (laughs) (laughs) Hope everybody had a great Christmas. Yesterday, we are coming to you today from the Blue Chew Studios on a downright chilly Monday morning, December 26th, just two days before we get to roast you on an open fire, Eric, I'm so excited this Wednesday, immediately following AEW dynamite for the first time ever, you and Nick Patrick are going to get together to talk about Starcade 1997. It's perhaps the most infamous fight in the history of wrestling podcasts. You and I from gosh, uh, the end of 2018, the very beginning of 2019. And now we get to talk about it again on the exact 25th anniversary of Starcade 1997. So as soon as dynamite is over this Wednesday, run to your computer, type in adfreeshows.com and join what we're calling the fast count live a conversation with Nick Patrick and Eric Bischoff that I'll be moderating. You don't want to miss it. I'm pumped, man. This should be a blast yeah, for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you're going to have a great time. <laughs> I, uh, I can't wait, man. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's all happening at adfreeshows.com and, uh, Man, I'll tell you, I think we've had some really fun shows lately. You know, there's been a, a little bit of controversy here and there, and it finally feels like you've, uh, you've tried to be the adult in the room and put to bed all the, the nonsense with you and Ric Flair. Yeah. And hopefully that, uh, that that'll work. Hopefully that's a, a, a solid strategy going forward. So we'll, we'll see. Um, but I, I know where I'm at. So that's all that really matters. By the way, also want to shout out to John Elba. Uh, my co-host for Strictly Business, that show is really uh, getting legs, as they say. And and more importantly for me, it's fun to do. And I think we're bringing some really enlightening conversations with regard to the business of the wrestling business. We don't talk finishes. We don't talk angles. We don't talk promos. We talk the business of the wrestling business, if you will. But it's a it's a fun show, and we bring some really, really smart people on that are engaged in the various parallel components of the entertainment industry with regards to, you know, wrestling. Um, we had a conversation uh, with Isaac Riston a while back, a, a nine time Emmy nominated music producer talking about Jim Johnston and WWE's music and, and what Isaac feels like as a, as a studio musician, what it takes to really make a great 
wrestling entrance um, song. So all, all that and a ton more. We talked to Dave Shear and Mike Johnson from PW Insider about covering the news and how that's changed for wrestling over the last 20 years. Um, we talked to Sean Ross Sapp uh, about his business and, and Fightful and how he's evolving it and growing it. So just a lot about the business of the wrestling business over at Strictly Business. And if you subscribe to 83 Weeks, which I encourage each and every one of you to do immediately, you automatically get notified when Strictly Business drops. So do it today. And we appreciate the support. Throw in some five-star ratings, say nice shit about us, all that good stuff. Well said. You know, here we are. I can't believe this is real, man, but this is our last show of 2022. Uh, you and I started doing this podcast years ago, and uh, I remember the first time we talked about it, and I, I sort of pitched the idea of the name 83 Weeks, and he said, what will we talk about on week 84? Uh, <laughs> well, we found a way, and, and this has been a really fun year, not just for our podcast, but all of wrestling. And uh, I was talking to Jeff Jarrett last week about just how different the business is now from a year ago. I don't think this time a year ago, anybody would have suspected that CM Punk would have been out of AEW, or the Vince McMahon would have been out of WWE, uh, or that Cody Rhodes would have jumped ship or that stone cold, Steve Austin would have come back and wrestled at WrestleMania or that Ric Flair would have gotten together for one last match and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's what's great about the wrestling business is there's always change. It's like, uh, the weather in Alabama, just wait a while. It'll change. Yeah, you know, it's like the the term never say never is so common in wrestling. And usually it pertains to, you know, people coming back into the business after they've been gone for a while. But in this case, never say never about anything in the wrestling business because you never know what is going to come up next. It's a fun, dynamic business, to say the least. It never stays the same for long. I, uh, I'm, I can't tell you how excited I am personally about our topic today. Uh, I guess the title of the show is the rise of Eric Bischoff. Uh, but I know that, you know, it's been in fashion in recent years to, uh, to take shots at Eric Bischoff and be critical of Eric Bischoff, but boy, there is a success story in here, like no other in wrestling or perhaps entertainment. And I hope that folks are taking notes. I'm not even saying that to be funny because what I admire most about Eric Bischoff, let me just get this out of the way at the top of the show is Eric is able to put himself out there. Eric is comfortable with risk. Eric is not one to just play it safe. And I know there's some people who hear that and, and chuckle, but here's the reality as a, as a young man growing up in the South, I heard an old phrase. Uh, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got. That's old South right there, baby. And Eric Bischoff was willing to put himself out there and say, Hey, if not me, who, if not now, when, why not me? And that sort of bravado and machismo is what is required for success. If you're not willing to get your ass out of your comfort zone and take chances, you're never really going to feel full peace and contentment and satisfaction. You're always going to say, oh, shoulda, woulda, coulda. And I feel like a lot of times in life, people just do today what they did yesterday. Eric Bischoff is a great example of how to not do that and take risks and it'll work out. You'll be just fine. So with that in mind, I hope everybody is really sincerely paying attention to this because this is a story that hasn't been repeated in wrestling before or since. And I know on the surface, people can say, oh, well, this and that, well, listen, how can you fall if you never get very high up the mountain? 
Eric Bischoff did. He climbed to the mountaintop and that's sort of the masthead of our podcast. 83 weeks. He didn't beat Vince McMahon once, which by the way, a whole lot of folks have never done ever. Not even one time. He beat him 83 weeks in a row. He beat him at his own game and he did it without being a quote unquote wrestling person. So I know there's lots of wrestling podcasts and luminaries and talking heads who say, well, this isn't what you do in wrestling. None of those people who say that ever beat Vince McMahon one time. So with that in mind, let's take a little journey. Let's talk about the rise of Eric Bischoff. Now, listen, we've all heard the story before, but let's just sort of try to get our dates and facts lined up here. You're uh, struggling to make it in the AWA out of blind loyalty to the man who brought you in and things are tight. And eventually as you start to see things disappear, like weekly paychecks and maybe your own car from the driveway, you say to yourself, (laughs) self, I got to get a new gig here. And I think there is a way to make some money down in WCW. Some of my old friends who were up here, like Larry Zabisco were down there. Uh, maybe I'll take a stab at that. And I think you've said before, maybe there was a contact. Maybe you had some sort of agent from your modeling days or what have you, who helped figure out where to send a tape. What's the process like where you first get your foot in the door in WCW? Well, and, and, and just as a reminder, I mean, it's been talked about a lot of it in my book, but I, I also, during that period of time that I was working for Vern Gagne and, and Vern was struggling financially. <clears throat> he was in the middle of a very, very expensive lawsuit with the state of Minnesota because the state of Minnesota was trying to basically take his property Vern owned a really beautiful piece of property in an area on Lake Minnetonka. Very, very beautiful. It is a very large chunk of property. And the county wanted that property for a park on the lake. And they exercised a law called eminent domain and basically wanted to pay Vern really pennies on the dollar for what that was worth. And Vern, Vern was a fighter. Vern was stubborn and he was a fighter. It's probably one of the th- reasons why I respect him to this day as much as I did. He, he wasn't going to take it laying down and he fought and he used his own money to fight. But over a period of a couple of years, it started to strangle him. Add that to the fact that AWA as a, as a revenue source was really drying up fast. So Vern was getting, you know, double sledged hammered, so to speak. And I, I, I knew it then. That was 1990, I believe. And I had been with Vern. And I said, Vern, look, I, I saw an ad in the paper. You know, WWE's hiring. And they got really, really young kids to feed and a house to eat. Can I have your blessing? And, and Vern gave me his blessing to go audition for, for WWE. Of course, I didn't get it. I didn't do a good job with the broomstick. The, the, the broomstick evidently complained to Kevin Dunn and Vince McMahon. <laughs> Uh, to, to, to the extent, you know, that it must have said something like, look, this, this, this idiot can't interview me. How's he going to interview talent? And I didn't get the job. And I went back to Vern and struggled for a long time. As you pointed out, you know, you gave a couple brief examples of what we were going through. But I knew if I got out of the wrestling business, I would never get back in. And within a couple of months, I don't know if it was a conversation with Larry Zabisco or how I found out about it heard about WCW and heard that they were hiring. And I went to my agent uh, who had represented me for commercial acting and and print modeling and that kind of thing and said, Hey, you know, can you help me figure this out? And we put together a demo tape. I gave it to her. She sent it down to Jim Hurd. Her name was Stevie Kozachok. Stevie, if you're listening, thank you again, man. You really helped me out. But Stevie sent the, uh, 
the tape to down to Jim Hurd, and then uh, I got a phone call, and pfft, off we went. So, what's the uh, experience like when you first, you know, come into WCW? Not even as an employee, just trying to get the gig. I assume that they see the tape, they give you a call, they arrange some travel. You come in for a meeting. Is there an audition, or is Strictly it? Yeah, no, it, it was an audition. Yeah, I, I sent them the tape. I got a phone call from Jim Hurd's assistant at the time. I don't remember who she was or who he was, but somebody called me and said, "Hey, we want to bring you in for an audition," and they sent me a plane ticket right away. And flew down, and now I had been to Atlanta quite a bit in years previous when I was really active in martial arts. There used to be a tournament uh, every year, and I think there still is, called the Battle of Atlanta. Uh, Joe Corley is the promoter that put it on. And I had been down to Atlanta competing quite a bit, but I had never really been inside the city of Atlanta and walked around and that type of thing. So I, I got to Atlanta early. They put me up at the Omni Hotel which is a part of the CNN center. And I was, I was blown away, man. And, and again, you, I don't want to make myself sound like a you know kid from a small town. I mean, I was from Minneapolis, but in terms of production, I, I was so blown. Just the mere fact that I'm at the Omni hotel, which is in the CNN center and CNN is owned by Turner and Turner owns WCW. Just the magnitude of the opportunity really dawned on me when I walked into the CNN center. I mean, I, I knew who Ted Turner was. I was, you know, admired him, knew his backstory. I knew about CNN. I watched CNN back then, back then, but I didn't really feel the magnitude of the opportunity till I checked into the Omni and I walked out of the Omni main lobby. I forgot my bags to the room. I walked out of that main lobby and here's the CNN atrium. I'm literally looking across the atrium on, a, on I think the second floor and I'm looking across and here's the CNN center and it's all glass. So you can see everybody in the CNN center and everybody's working and you know, it's 24 seven. So and that's when I stood there for just a moment and went, holy crap, this is, this is kind of a big deal. It was pretty cool. That was just my first impression. I remember standing, looking out over the atrium going, I can't believe I'm really here. And I walked down that, that night because it was in the evening by the time I got there. And it was a Sunday. And I, I walked down into the atrium and I want you you take the escalators down to the lower, like the food court level, the CNN center. I don't know what it's like now, but it's what it was then. And there was a little gift shop right in the middle of that atrium. And I saw this black hat. It said TNT sports. I thought, man, I got to have that hat. I'm coming back here tomorrow morning. Even if I don't get the job, I'm getting that hat. That's coming back to Minnesota with me. I, I was like giddy, man. I was like a little kid. I love that. I love the enthusiasm and, um, you know, it's one of the keys to your success. I think, uh, well, I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but I am curious, you know, when you get this first initial call from, from Jim Hurd, what's the, what's the tone and tenor of that call? Is it, uh, Hey, we think we could use a guy like you around here. Why don't you come down? Let's see what you, we we've heard conflicting stories about Jim Hurd. I'm just trying to get a vibe for what the phone call, the first phone call may have been like. I, I think it was very matter of fact. I mean, I jumped, you know, I mean, Mrs. B and I didn't even have a, 
a box spring, you know, our mattress was on the floor in, in our home at that point. We had very little furniture. Um, and I remember I, I was, it was early in the morning, you know, cause that was Minneapolis. We were an hour behind Atlanta. So it was, a, you know, it was probably nine o'clock, you know, Atlanta time, nine 30, it was eight or eight 30 in Minnesota. And Lori and I were just kind of getting out of bed and getting moving. And I got that phone call and I literally jumped four feet in the air. I know I didn't, I didn't sell it. I didn't act like a, you know, didn't act as desperate as I was or as excited as I was. Cause I knew I was going to have to negotiate. Right. But it was a very professional, very matter of fact, Hey, we got your tape. We'd like to have, have you come in. Uh, we'd like you to audition. What's your schedule? <laughs> and I was very matter of fact until I hung up the phone. That's awesome. And I started doing cartwheels. <laughs> now, before you actually walk in and meet everybody and press the flesh, I do want to ask you, you knew folks down there who worked for WCW. Did you have any prior conversations with a Larry Zabisco or a diamond Dallas page or any of the folks that you knew from the AWA who were down there? Or did you just go in cold? No, I went in cold. Um, now keep in mind my relationship with diamond Dallas page at that time was strained at best. I mean, I mean, it wasn't, we didn't have heat with each other, but we had clearly determined that we, the chemistry just wasn't there. And, you know, the last time I had seen Paige was in a hotel lobby when people were pulling us apart because I, I wanted to kick his ass. Right. Um, maybe the last time I saw him was when I went to his room the next day and apologized for wanting to kick his ass. But nonetheless, it was a strained relationship. And I, I you know, I didn't, I didn't stay in touch with Larry while he was down there. I certainly knew him, but really Paige and Larry, I think were the only two people in WCW that I, was familiar with and, and Larry being the only one that I would have considered a friend at that time. Well, I'm sure before, uh, you walked into that interview, as you sort of laid out, you had to be overwhelmed with what the opportunity was. Were you nervous? Not at first. Now, when I first got there the following morning, I got a phone call and I think it was from Keith Mitchell. Um, and he introduced himself over the phone said, okay, um, we're, we're going to bring you down to the studio. I didn't even know where the production studio was because the WCW uh, post-production studio was on that lower food court level, but back in the corner. So it wasn't even very obvious if you were walking around a CNN center, uh, on that, in, on the, near the food court, if you're just walking around and looking at stuff, you probably wouldn't even notice it. So I, I didn't know where the production facility was, but Keith told me, yeah, come on down. I think it was like 10 o'clock in the morning or 11 o'clock in the morning. We're going to, here's the part that got me. So I'm excited. I'm giddy. I had already gone and bought my TNT hat. I'm all ready to go. And I talked to Keith Mitchell and he says, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sit you down. We want to hear how you sound and play by play. So we're going to put you in a, you know, in, in a post-production booth and we're going to have you do play by play over a couple matches. Cool. I've done that. I felt really comfortable, um, probably more comfortable than I should have, but I felt pretty comfortable in my play by play at that time. I'd been doing it on ESPN and, and been doing it for a couple of years and was trained by Vern. So it didn't, I, I wasn't over, I wasn't intimidated at all about that or concerned. And then he said, yeah, we're going to, for your color commentary, we're going to use Diamond Dallas Page. And I'm guessing they uh, thought, well, Diamond Dallas Page was an AWA, Eric's from AWA. It'll, it'll, they'll be comfortable. They know each other. And I'm thinking, are you fucking kidding me? Are we kidding here? 
here's my big opportunity. My cars are being hauled out of my driveway because I couldn't afford to make payments on them. I'm on a propane. I'm heating my house with kerosene heaters. I kid you not. It was bad. And I'm all excited because finally I'm going to dig my way out of this mess. You know, I'd gone for six months or whatever it was, eight months. I don't even know. It was a long time without getting a paycheck. And I wasn't making that much money to begin with. I was only making $600 a week for the AWA. And and I had to take taxes out of that. I learned the hard way. So I was hurting and I'm all excited. I got my TNT black hat. I'm talking to Keith Mitchell, who I hadn't met in person yet. And he's telling me what I'm going to do. And I'm thinking, I'm going to nail this. I'm going to nail this. And, oh, and you're going to be working with Diamond Dallas Page. Oh, he's going to, that's not going to be good. I thought it's going to be horrible. And I was, I was concerned because, you know, again, chemistry was not there between Page and I at that point. So I went downstairs when the time came, you know, I got dressed and, you know, this is before, you know, manscape and weed whackers and shit. So I made sure I didn't have any hair hanging out of my nose. Well, you know what? Hang on time out. That makes me remind everybody that this episode of 83 weeks is brought to you by our favorite producer of ball hair trimmers of all time manscaped. The global leaders in below the waist grooming are leaving 2022 with brand new products. The preserve cologne and the preserve body wash 2023 is the year to up your hygiene game and smell amazing. And manscaped wants to help you with this special offer. Use the code 83 weeks for 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com. Take the leap into the new year and join the 7 million men who already trust their balls with manscaped. 2023 is on its way. And the last thing you want to be is the guy with pubes getting in the way of making it your best year yet. The manscaped lawnmower 4.0 is the leader in the performance package 4.0, or as we like to call it, the perfect package for your package this new year, lose the uh, loose pines off your wood with the best tool for the job. (laughs) The signature lawnmower 4.0. It's here to take down every pube in its path. Maybe you're having trouble dealing with that nose and ear hair. Well, manscapes got you covered. It's the weed whacker. It's going to change the game and whack your worst weeds. How about a little confidence builder though? Smelling good. Smelling like a million bucks. Well, you asked and manscaped answered. They got a brand new manscaped preserve body wash and preserve cologne. Here's what's cool about this. It's got a light woodsy scent but it's infused with aloe vera and sea salt to keep your skin feeling clean, nice, and moisturized. It checks all the boxes for what you need in 2023. The preserved cologne though, man, that's going to make you smell good all year long. That light woodsy scent is also there for the cologne. It's going to make you feel like a man that was forged from the earth by God. It's also cruelty free, dye free, paraben free. It's also vegan. So you know, you're in the right hands and still smelling good. Why not use the code 83 weeks? Why not get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com? Do it right now. Go to manscaped.com, get 20% off and free shipping with the code 83 weeks at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code 83 weeks. Happy new year to you and your freshly trimmed balls. Hey, this is John Alba, the co-host of Strictly Business with Eric Bischoff. And Eric, we've got a great episode ahead this week to wrap up 2022. 
top five news stories in what is unquestionably the most newsworthy year in all of professional wrestling. And we're going to cover it right here on Strictly Business. Make sure you tune into Strictly Business every single Thursday, 83weeks.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. And for early access, become a subscriber to Ad Free Shows at adfreeshows.com. So back at it here, you, uh, you're, you're looking good. You're feeling good. You're smelling good. You're sat next to diamond Dallas page who you most recently tried to get in a fight with in a hotel lobby. Things are not going exactly as planned, but damn the torpedoes. Here you go. Yeah. And what was really cool is page set me down and it's like n- none of that silly high school shit ever happened. It's like he sat down and he goes, look, bro, <laughs> this is what they're looking for. This is the style of play-by-play they like. And if you do, if you hit this and you hit that, and I mean, basically laid out to me what. Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Dallas's impression was of what would work for me in WCW. He knew what they were looking for in play-by-play. I was coming in from WCW or AWA. I was coming into the WCW from AWA, sorry, early in the morning. And I, I wasn't sure, you know, every, every, everybody has a difference, you know, play-by-play is subjective. Yes. You know, some people like different styles. I had my style that I learned from Vern and, and Mike Shields and AWA, but Paige said, no, no, here's what they're looking for. Do this and do this and do this. He said, I'll feed you. I'll help set you up at the right time. I mean, he really took the time. I mean, this was like a 45-minute, half-hour conversation. Wow. It wasn't just, hey, bro, make sure you do this and this. It was a, it was a pretty in-depth conversation. And Paige was really excited about it. I mean, he was – he was, and, and, and going down to – I'm going to put this into context. Now, back up. I'm on the phone with Keith. I'm excited. I'm looking at my TNT sports hat. I can't wait. I know I'm going to get this job. Oh, now Keith says, oh, by the way, you're going to be working with Diamond Dell Page for audition. I went, man, boom. All that excitement, all that enthusiasm, all that confidence went out the window because I think I'm going to be working with a guy who more than likely is going to go out of his way to, if not make me sound bad, he's not going to go out of his way to bring the energy to make it sound great. Right. And it, you know, play by playing colors is a little bit like doing a dance. You know, it's like a waltz. You both kind of got to be on the same music and and doing the same dance. 
And I, I just, I went down there thinking, oh, man, did I blow this? This is going to be horrible. And Paige sat me down and spent time with me. And I started to feel like, wow, this, this could actually work. And it did. You know, we worked really well together. You know, for an audition, it was, it was great. We had never worked together before. And it was, uh, it was a great audition. I got done. And it was about lunchtime. Hang tight. How many, what, what all did you call? Did you call a full show? Did you call a full match? Is it three matches? I mean, talk me through I, what the, no, I, I, I don't think it was a full show. I don't think it was a full show. I think it was a series of matches. Okay. It had been edited together without the interviews and without the opens or anything else. Just call the action type of thing. Do they give you some sort of, um, like sometimes, or I shouldn't say sometimes in every wrestling show I've ever been around, there's like announcer notes. Someone's going to hand them something. They're going to have some prep. Are you just sitting down cold or do they at least hand you something? No, I had a format, you know, I knew, but keep in mind, I didn't know who I, I didn't know three groups. Well, some of the roster I had heard of right. before, but I wasn't familiar with anybody other than diamond Dell page and Larry Zabisco. And I certainly wasn't aware of their storylines. I wasn't watching WCW in, in Minnesota at that point. Uh, so as, as a product, as an in-ring product and as a roster, I was coming in absolutely ice cold. But when they sat me down and do the play-by-play, of course, Paige, again, he prepped me. He goes, okay, this is the match. Here's this guy. Here's this guy. Here's his finish. Da, 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 da. So Paige was able, and that's what I say. Paige really made that, that audition work because if Paige would not have taken the time to say to me, Hey, here's this guy. Here's this guy. Here's their storyline. Here's their finishes. You know, he, he, he really led me through the elements of doing play by play that I wasn't familiar enough with the talent to do. Right. He set me up in a good way and he could have set me up in a bad way, or he could have just done his job and not tried either way. In which case I probably would have possibly not gotten that. I mean, my hair was working. I did have great hair. Yes. Yeah. I had that. And what's really funny is I went down. I didn't have any suits, right? I had this blue AWA sport jacket that I wore when I needed to, but I didn't have any suits and I really wanted to dress to impress because it was a big opportunity for me. So I went to a custom suit maker in a mall, not far from where we lived and I told the guy, I said, dude, I, I've got no money. You know, I don't have a credit card. I've got no cash, but I really need two good suits, like really good suits. And a guy looked at me, he goes, follow me. And he took me over to the rack and he said, here, you know, he picked out a couple of things for me. And they, at the time, they were expensive suits. They were like six, $800 suits. Wow. This is 1991. They weren't like $149 rack suits. They were nice. And he tailored them for me. He said, you go down and get that job and we'll, we'll figure out how you're going to pay for these suits when you get back, which I thought was pretty cool. Wow. I was just honest with him. I didn't try to bullshit. I, I just, I said, I, I need these suits, dude. And I don't know how to pay for them. Very cool guy. Anyway, I went down there with my two really cool suits and uh, did it and got through the play by play part with Dallas. I think we may have done a couple things, a couple standups you know, together, like we're opening up a show in front of a green screen. And Keith said, okay, I'll tell you what, we're going to edit this stuff together. We're going to get it up to Jim Hurd. Um, 
we'll call you. Go grab lunch. So I went back to the Omni. They had a really good Italian restaurant in there. And I sat there and had lunch and just waited around. Went up to my room when I was done eating. Waited, waited, waited. Finally got the call. Okay, come on up. Mr. Hurd wants to meet you. So I got in the elevator, went upstairs, and uh, nervous, but feeling pretty good. Because, again, I you get a feel, you know. Sure. I, it, it felt pretty good. I didn't, there was no real serious flaws. My energy was right. My hair was perfect. And, uh, went upstairs, talked to Jim Hurd. He sat me down, basically said, kid, I'm going to offer you a job. I want you to make Jim Ross's and Tony Schiavone's life as miserable as you can. I don't even know who Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone were. I need this gig. So if there's somebody's life you need me to make miserable, I'm your guy. I'm a mercenary at this point and offered me the job and, and off we went in hindsight, 70, 70 grand a year. That's what they paid me when I first came in as an announcer it was 70 grand a year. And I felt like I won a lottery ticket. I was only making about 30 grand a year working for Vern and I hadn't been paid in almost a year. So you can imagine how that made me feel right. And I had made pretty good money prior to that. Um, before going to AWA, I was used to making fairly decent money at a very early age, but then, you know, to go without it for a long time, was kind of like the 70 grand might have, might as well have been 700,000 as far as how it made me feel. Let's remind everybody that, uh, $70,000 in 1991 dollars is like 153 grand in 2022 dollars. So, that's a pretty good gig, man. No doubt about it. Um, can you believe it? It's finally here. It's the most wonderful time of the year, unless you get stressed out about how to pay for it. Savewithconrad.com can help you make this the best Christmas ever. You won't make a house payment for the next two months. That's right. Skip your next two house payments and use all that cash for your extra holiday expenses. And come next year, you're going to have a lower monthly payment. Don't put Christmas on a credit card. Pay your credit card debt off at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Savewithconrad.com. You know, you've said that line about Jim Hurd before about, I want you to make Tony Schiavone and Jim Ross's life miserable. Lots of different ways to interpret that. You assume in hindsight that he meant just, Hey, keep these guys on their toes, make them bring their a game. I mean, he didn't really mean like, Hey, rib them and chain their shit to the lockers and jump in their <laughs> no. trash can. You yeah. know, I, I, when he said it, I didn't really think about it too much. Cause again, I didn't know Jim or Tony. I didn't, when he said their names, it was, I just drew a blank. It didn't mean anything to me. Um, they were just two names, and, but afterwards, once I kind of learned who Tony was and Jim was, I was like, oh, okay. He's hiring me to be a C squad announcer and wants me to up my game and put some professional pressure on them is the way I interpreted it, you know, after a couple of days. So let's talk about, you know, your, uh, your good news. Once you get the good news and uh, you agree, I'm sure there's a handshake deal and high fives all around. I assume there's some sort of start date and initial paperwork. Uh, when do you communicate to the missus back in Minnesota and how quickly do you start working on arrangements to move to Atlanta? Um, well, I, I got a hold of Mrs. B right away. I mean, I called her the minute I got out of Jim Hurd's office, um, to share the good news. Cause I knew she was waiting, right? <laughs> she was sitting in our house and our empty house, 
with kerosene <laughs> furniture and our two kids are eating beans and rice and crappy hot dogs. So I, I called her right away. And of course she was you know thrilled. She was very confident. She's always that way. Oh, she's like, Oh, you're going to get this. Before I left, she's like, Oh, there's, there's no way they're not going to hire you. Right. And I didn't have that same level of confidence. I felt pretty good, but not like she did. So when I called her, she was, I don't want to say relief because I think she really believed I was going to get the job, but there was a level of excitement and, you know, the pressure was off, you know, it meant a lot. And in terms of, I mean, they wanted me to start right away. Uh, and I, I think I was down in Atlanta the very next week, but I was commuting. I, I lived in Minnesota and had a home there and it was about a year or so. It wasn't until Watts came in okay. that I was asked to move to Atlanta. Well, let's, uh, let's take a time out right now and talk about Mrs. B because I feel like oftentimes when we hear success stories in business or wrestling or entertainment or just life that we often sort of gloss over the support system that's necessary for some of this stuff. And man, that can go one of two ways. You can have somebody who's in your ear saying, you're not going to leave here and you know, that's stupid and you don't need to do that. You need to do this. Then you've got the polar opposite of that which is Mrs. B who just believes in the power of positivity and is trying to speak positive things into existence. It's a total, uh, mental shift. And we're talking shift this morning about Mrs. B. Um, she is maybe the most critical part of your success that maybe enough people don't really talk about. Would that be fair to say? That's an understatement. Yeah. It, it would be unfair because it's an understatement. Um, I, and this isn't like some, oh, I want a Grammy or I want an Oscar speech here. I'm not saying this because I feel obligated to say it in any way. I, I'm saying it because I truly believe it and feel it. There's no way I would have been anywhere in my 30-year career path that I'm now jumping off of. Um, I would have never been on that journey had it not been for, for Lori. And, you know, she's not just somebody who read a book about the power of positive thinking and right. walks around repeating things that she read in a book, trying to force herself to be positive. It is in her DNA. It's in the marrow of her bones. She is genuinely and always has been like from day one. It's not like she found this power of positivity she's been that way since the day I met her and never let, no matter how tough things got or get, because it's still true today. She never changes. She's, she's, she never changes. She never lets conditions or situations ever take her off her path or her way of thinking or her belief system. And I wasn't that way. I, you know, I had a lot of that. I, I've always had a lot of confidence. I've always had a lot of, um, I, I use the term aggression, but that sometimes sounds negative, but I've always been an alpha type personality with a strong entrepreneurial instinct and no fear. You know, those, and those are good qualities, right? They're not bad qualities, but 
I would also let situations get me down, mm -hmm. make me angry. You know, being angry and being sad, people think of them as two different things, but they're really kind of the same thing to me. Two sides of the same coin. They really are because they're taking you off of your game. You're, yes. you're not, you're, 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 you're sad, you're miserable, you're angry. Those are negative feelings. And I would let those negative feelings get to me and they would become roadblocks. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't realize it. I just thought it was just, you know, my pattern, if you will, I'll get out of it. But right now I'm angry and I'm just going to let myself be angry. It's just a waste of time and a waste of energy. And it really keeps you from, kept me from seeing the bigger picture or seeing opportunities as I was focusing on something that was not productive. And Ms. Lori really, and not in a, like a teacher way, not in a life coach way, not in a coaching way of any kind, but just as a spouse, you know, just, kept talking, kept pulling me out of those things and out of those moments when I would be negative in any way, angry, sad, whatever, frustrated, we're all the same thing. And she talked me through it. And eventually it took, you know, 30 years, but I was say years. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I'm a, <laughs> I'm stubborn. Um, and sad in my way sometimes. But she just kept at it, man. And there's no way I would have achieved any of this. You know, we live in a beautiful home in a beautiful part of the country where people from all over the world come to visit. And I live here 365 days a year. Yeah. And I wouldn't be here right now. We wouldn't have this. I wouldn't have done anything. I probably, I, I wouldn't have lasted in WCW beyond just being a C-Squad announcer. I would have never tried to become executive producer. None of that would have happened without her. So and that's not exaggerating and not just saying it to be nice to my wife. It's true. Only a handful of things can derail a person from their success. I, uh, my grandfather once upon a time said, son, there's only two things that can, uh, get a great man off his game and derail a great man's success. And it's drugs and women. So choose wisely. And, uh, boy, I don't mean to break it down that way, but I do think a, a supporting cast, if you don't have that in your life, it's going to be tough. Uh, you're going to be, there's going to be times where you're at the office and you think, man, I need to be at home and times where you're at home and you think, man, I need to be at the office. And the trick to finding success, I think professionally is one of the tricks you, you've got to find someone who compliments your life rather than complicates your life. And I think Mrs. B checked all those boxes. I mean, I think it's probably in her DNA. No, no doubt about it. And thank you to today's sponsor Fansley. Fansley has the adult content you crave by creators you already know and plenty that you don't. What's your taste? Vanilla? Not vanilla. Maybe a weird combination? Cool with us. Fansley has a whole algorithm dedicated to finding new content and creators you're into. Fansley allows you to discover and support a huge number of creators. Feet picks, water shorts, whatever you're into, Fansley is too. With a broad array of vanilla to kinky content and hundreds of thousands of creators, Fansley has the content you didn't even know you wanted. Don't know what you're into? Well, don't worry. Fansley can figure it out with their discoverability algorithm. Think TikTok, but, you know, different. Looking for something safe for work? Well, Fansley has content for every time of day, but they don't know your schedule. 
Want to get started as a content creator yourself? Well, Fansly makes it easy to start your very own small business from the comfort of your <clears throat> bedroom or wherever the content takes you. The Fansly team is dedicated to supporting your journey. They're here to make you money, helping you grow your community, takedowns of league content and everything else. And they're going to help you every step of the way. Fansly is dedicated to providing a safe and reliable platform for content creators of all type, because guys, sex work is real work. Listen up, folks. We know what this ad's about, and if you don't, well, you're in for a long night. I threw it in my Google machine, and boy, howdy. Hey, and y'all listen up. We've got a special deal for our listeners. Go to fansley.com slash promo slash 83 weeks for a free extended trial subscription to one of your favorite content creators. Just use the code 83 weeks at checkout all the content on fansley.com. Who knows what you'll find feed picks, your neighbor, Jenna feed picks from your neighbor, Jenna. Again, that's fansley.com slash promo slash 83 weeks. And the promo code is 83 weeks. Thanks fansley. And, and DNA, as you know, is the foundation for all things that are to come into the future. Good and bad. Speaking of DNA, we are bragging about Embark. It's an incredible tool for dog owners that screens for more than 230 health risks across 350 breeds. That's more breeds than any other dog DNA test. Right up top, we'd like to thank EmbarkVet.com for supporting 83 weeks. Go to EmbarkVet.com and get free shipping and save 65 bucks with the promo code 83 weeks. 61% of pet owners plan to adjust their dog's routine, or now feel more prepared to be a good pet parent after testing with Embark. You know that Embark can help you and your vet put together a proactive, personalized care plan for your dog. And knowing your dog better can mean more time together. You'll unlock their breed mix. You'll screen for genetic health risks. You'll discover their family tree. That's right. You'll discover your dog's family tree. You'll even customize their care with the Embark dog DNA test. This is also the perfect gift for the dog lover in your life. So if you, with the holidays in the rearview mirror, if you're thinking, oh, I forgot to get aunt Sally something. And she sent me some, man, here's what she wants. She wants you to go to embark vet. She wants to learn more about her own dog. Who doesn't love their own dog? Come on. Now here's how it works. It's simple. You swab your pup with the cheek swab sent to you. Then you mail it back in a provided prepaid return envelope. And in just a few weeks, your dog's results will be ready. Plus embark can help you and your vet put together a personalized care plan for your dog. Embark has a limited time offer on their breed and health kit and their purebred kit for 83 weeks. Listeners just go to embarkvet.com to get free shipping and save 65 bucks with the promo code 83 weeks. Visit embarkvet.com and use the promo code 83 weeks to save 65 bucks today. And Eric, I know you did it. I'm looking at your results for Nikki right now. This was a cool experience for you and the fam, right? Really was, you know, and I knew, um, because I knew the breeder that I bought Nikki from, I had purchased a dog from this breeder, um, previously. So I was, I was very familiar with the breeder and I knew she was a great breeder and took great care, uh, in breeding my, my dog, uh, Nikki is an Australian cattle dog, also called a blue healer. <clears throat> That, that was the breed of dog I really, really wanted because of where I live. You know, they're, they're great dogs up in the mountains. They'll, they'll go after grizzly bears and they're, they're tough for a grizzly bear to deal with because they're so fast and they're so aggressive and they, 
They just hit you from all different angles and they're great for, you know, herding cattle and, and things like that. And although I didn't do any of that, um, I, w- I did spend a lot of time up in the mountains uh, for a while and I'd go up on horseback, pack up, you know, with tents and camp gear and all that. You'd go up into the mountains and there's a lot of grizzlies around here and they're, they're, they're a big deal. You know, every year there's at least three or four people in my neighborhood, so to speak, that are mauled and some of them killed by grizzlies. Once you get up there, you're, 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 it's, it's a little rustic up there. And a good Australian cattle dog is a great dog to have with you in those situations because they're, they have no fear. They think they're 800 pounds and they think they can kick a grizzly bear's ass, but you need that up there. And that's why I got that breed. Um, But the breed also has certain characteristics that makes them vulnerable to certain things. And the Embark DNA cat really, really broke down a lot of those hereditary issues in that particular breed and will flag you if your dog is carrying certain DNA that makes them even more susceptible. So I, I it, for me, it provide the DNA, the Embark DNA test did two things. It gave me a sense of comfort and relief because I didn't feel like, well, maybe there's something going on in my dog that's going to affect her a couple of years from now that I don't know about. So I don't have to worry about that. I got a chance to go through all that. And the other thing is it did is it reminded me that that particular dog breed can be susceptible to joint issues. So I took the DNA test to my vet, worked with her and we put my dog, Nikki on a, it's called Dasequin. It's a prescription joint medication. That's a preventative. It, and people do the, a version of the same thing, you know, collagen and all the things that help support ligaments and cartilage and things like that. Um, so I, I credit Embark and, and DNA for not only, highlighting the things that weren't wrong with Nikki that I didn't have to worry about, but helping me to realize, "Mm, I don't want her to be crippled up, you know, and not able to get out and chase rabbits and deer when she's eight or 10 years old. I want her to be active as for as long as she can be. That's my job. Um, And thanks to Embark and and, and their DNA test, I was able to accomplish that. So I, I encourage people, man. And it's fun too. You learn a lot. You know, I encourage people to learn about that, even if you have a mixed breed or if you, you know, a lot of people, and I really encourage this, um, they rescue dogs and get dogs from shelters. And I think that's a, just a wonderful, wonderful way to do it. If you, if you're going to bring home a pet, but you'd like to know a little bit about that pet. And a lot of times when you adopt or you, you save a dog in the shelter, you, you have no idea what their breed mix is or what their DNA looks like. And this is a great way to do that. And it teaches you also makes you want to learn more about your dog. Shout out to them, man. Embarkvet.com. Use that promo code 83 weeks, save yourself 65 bucks and get free shipping. Let's take care of those dogs. Keep them around a little longer. Uh, let's talk about who you're going to replace. Of course, this is almost like a, like a roster, right? Think of it in terms of a, a football team. And when they hire a new quarterback that usually means somebody in that quarterback position is going to be on waivers. And it turns out it's Lance Russell. Meltzer would write Eric Bischoff who did AWA announcing the past few years will replace Lance Russell on the syndicated WCW pro wrestling show. 
not necessarily growing up a, a huge territorial wrestling fan, just growing up watching what you watched in Minnesota. Did you have any foggy idea who the heck Lance Russell even was? No. Yeah. I didn't. Cause I certainly wasn't watching, you know, Memphis, Memphis wrestling or yeah. whatever it was. I no. I mean, I, I, no, I, I had, you know, back in the AWA or whatever year it was, 88 or 89, when we did the super clash series, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that super clash event or series of events was basically AWA, Vergania, Jerry Jarrett, Don Owens from wherever Don was from, Kansas City, maybe. Um, WCCW, World Class Championship Wrestling, you know, all kind of came together. It was a little bit of a forbidden door, you know, kind of thing where these different territorial promoters all agreed to work together at one big event. And I think they were all trying to find a way to compete with WWF at the time. Um, so I, through that experience, I was exposed, you know, Jerry Lawler. I never really, I knew who Jerry Lawler was because Jerry, Nick Bockwinkle went down and worked down in for Jerry Jarrett for a period of time. So I was somewhat aware of Memphis and that territory, but not Lance. I didn't watch it on television, so I didn't know Lance. And I look, I, Lance didn't get fired. He, he got reassigned, but Lance was there for a long time while I was there. He just was doing different things. Um, what's your, what's your first day on the job? Like, you know, you're, I assume you get a start date as you laid out, you're not moving right away. You're going to be traveling back and forth. So just take me through sort of your, your first day on the job. You know, I don't really remember it. Um, it would have been a week or two later by the time I got settled in and got through the formalities and signed my contract and all that. Um, But it was a short period of time. And I started working right away with DDP. And because of the experience I had with Dallas in the audition, that really changed the dynamic between Paige and I. That, you know, silly high school baggage that I thought I was going to have to deal with was gone. Right. And this, this was a whole different world now and, and a different relationship, different chemistry. So we started working together right away. And uh, honestly, it was kind of seamless. It went very smoothly. Everybody that I worked with, you know, I think it was Keith Mitchell was probably the most supportive. He was the one that I talked to the most initially for the first couple of weeks. Um, I, I kind of looked at him as my boss, even though he wasn't really my boss, but I looked at him that way. And he assured me that, you know, we were doing a good job and that everybody was happy. And I sure as hell was. (laughs) I I believe that, uh, you starting really sort of coincides, boy, what a, what an interesting set of circumstances you're starting around the exact same time that Ric Flair is in a a feud with Jim Hurd and he's going to wind up leaving the promotion. I think you work some, some. TV tapings in advance of the big pay-per-view, um, which we know is going to be known as maybe the worst WCW pay-per-view ever great American bash 91. Talk to me about, you know, what you were hearing about Ric Flair and the big controversy, because that was not only a big story in WCW, but all of wrestling that wait a minute, the world champion sort of their Hulk Hogan is leaving. That's, that's a big story. And one that 
since you're sort of starting, you may not have had your arms around yet. No, I wasn't, I wasn't engaged at all in that drama. Um, and, and what do I remember about that? I mean, people were generally pretty quiet about it. I think by the time I got there, the shock of it all was over. Right. People were still reacting, you know, or still disappointed, you know, cause Rick had a lot of, a lot of supporters in WCW. Um, and you know, you heard comments, but to me, it was, how would I describe it? It's like, you know, the bad news hit a couple of weeks before I got there and, and now everybody had accepted it and resigned themselves to it. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a lot of discussion about it. You know, that first television taping in Anderson, South Carolina, I, I remember, you know, driving there was me and Dusty and Doug Dillinger and Janie Engel. I think we all rode together. Janie was Dusty's assistant at the time. And a little bit of conversation about it there. I think Dusty, what do I remember about Dusty's? Dusty didn't say a lot, but there was always a, I say there's always, my impression was that there was a fair amount of professional, I don't want to say jealousy, but professional tension right. between Rick and Dusty. It's like they didn't always get along great. You know, Dusty was the booker. Rick was there. He wanted out. And I don't even want to call it resentment, but there was a certain level of tension between Dusty and, and Flair that I picked up on. Nothing specific. But when I got there, Rick was stretching out backstage, and I introduced myself. I never met Rick before. Rick was very cordial. You know, very, you know, he was Rick charming as ever. Yes. And, but it was a very short conversation. Oh, hi, I'm Eric Bischoff. We're happy to meet you. Good to meet you. Good luck here. That was it. It was about that fast. And then you do your first big pay-per-view, of course, that's great American bash 1991. I, I I'm curious what you recall of that pay-per-view. I mean, it is your first big show that you've been to like this. I, I know that there were quote unquote, big shows for the AWA, but this certainly feels a few levels bigger and it's mired in controversy. I mean, there's fans chanting, we want flair and we're, we're sort of crowning an interim champion. And there's a really bad scaffold match that stone cold still says is probably the worst, most embarrassing match of his career. Um, but man, you, you've just got to be full of excitement and enthusiasm, man. Look at this. Isn't this great? Maybe everybody else is looking around thinking, what are you looking at? Not so much. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of that, right? And keep in mind, I was commuting. I was I'd come in on Sundays, Sunday nights. I'd we we generally would go do TV on Tuesday. Excuse me, on Monday. On Monday, Tuesday, we'd already be back in Atlanta because most of the television tapings we did were within about a hundred and fifty mile drive of of Atlanta. So I'd fly into Atlanta, drive to whatever building we were shooting TV in, usually with Dusty and Doug, Janie, do TV, get back late Monday night, early Tuesday morning. I'm down in post-production. We're doing syndicated shows. I did, uh, God, I can't remember what they were. One of them was called The Main Event. That was a Sunday night show that eventually I was doing. And WCW Pro was the show that Diamond Ellis Page and I did. 
And then I did some, you know, I did some international stuff. I did some just random, you know, stuff. Um, and then I'd go home. So I didn't hear a lot of chatter. You know, I wasn't in the office per, to, per se. I very rarely went into the office and talked to anybody other than Keith Mitchell and some of the people that, you know, Bill Tinsley used to be the cameraman. Um, some of the other production people that, that I worked with and they didn't talk about it. Rick or, or Rick leaving or politics or any of that. So for me, I'm just a guy that was so grateful for the job. And again, this is, Unless you were me, you can't understand this. You just can't. I'm going to do my best. But, you know, I, I left a really, truly difficult situation. Yes. You know, AW, AWA was the wheels were falling off before I got there in 1987. So by 1991, it was really, really bad. Just bad. No hope. That, and that's the worst thing in the world is when you lose hope. And you cannot find a reason to be optimistic, no matter how hard you try. That's what I left. And I left a little production studio that right now you could put in my guest house. You know, the, the, the room, the guest house I'm broadcasting from now or taping this show from now, you could fit the entire production facility in this thousand square foot guest house. Whatever it is. And I thought that was cool because I never worked in a production business, you know, editing equipment. Oh, it looked like the, looked like the deck of the star uh, of the enterprise. You know, I thought that was cool. Now I'm going from that environment to the CNN center yes. and green screen. And I mean, I'm just like, Whoa, this is all so cool. And I go to the great American bash and from my perspective, because of where my head was at and not hearing all the negative chatter because I was never around it. I'm thinking this life is just the best. It's the best. And is now the scaffold match. I will admit, I thought was pretty horrible, Yeah, but I didn't, I didn't judge it because I went through the team challenge series. Right. Let's yeah. talk about horrible. Yeah. My perception of horrible was different than most everybody else's. <laughs> Well said. And I was just like, oh, whoa, it's big. It's a lot more people that would come to an AWA show. You know, towards the end in the AWA, I'd be down at the Mayo Civic Auditorium in Rochester, Minnesota, and we'd be taping the ESPN shows, which was, you know, Vince, or Vern's biggest shows. And there'd be like, you know, 600 people there. <laughs> so it didn't look bad to me, brother. Tell me about, tell me about your, your duties here. Like, I think one of the first times I remember seeing you is when you're interviewing the new world champion, Lex Luger, uh, after the great American bash. And I think it airs on worldwide. Uh, this is just me best guessing here, but I remember seeing you in that interviewer capacity first, before I actually remember you doing play by play and commentary and things like that. Did you have a preference as to which one you preferred? Or maybe which one again, please. Like stand up interviews, mean gene shit, or play by play. Like I always like play by play. I was okay. comfortable doing stand up interviews, but the format for them were so you know it it didn't require a lot of creativity. You know, you had to be knowledgeable, 
you had to bring a certain amount of energy. You had to feel like or the viewer has to feel like you actually in control. And, you know, there's certain things you have to do well in one of those standups, but I always enjoyed play by play more because it felt like I had more. What's up everyone. It's reality. Steve, your number one source for all things, bachelor nation and reality TV. Every day I'm giving you the behind the scenes juice and your info on all your bachelor nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The reality Steve podcast. Part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. I had more time, you know, because the stand-up, you got a minute 30, right? Got a minute. You got two minutes, 2.30 if you're lucky. And the talent should take the majority of that. Yes. If the announcer's taking the majority of it, you got a problem. Yeah. But if if you do your job well as an announcer, you're really just garnish. You're just there to set up the talent and help the talent get over. But with play-by-play, there's more art involved in it. There's right. more psychology involved in it for me. It, it gave me, you know, I had a six or eight or 10 or 12 minute match, which means I've got six or eight or 10 or 12 minutes to tell a story and to create enthusiasm or paint a picture, all that. So I always enjoyed play by play more for that reason. Let's talk about Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone. Uh, I know that you were quote unquote hired to make their lives miserable. Did they know that? Did, were they welcoming? Were, were they trying to be helpful? Did you view them as mentors? Did they take you under their wing? And if they didn't, did anyone? Um, both Ross and Tony were professional, right? There was no. I didn't get the impression that they had a feeling about me one way or the other. I was there to do a job and I worked for Jim. Technically I reported to Jim Ross and Jim was very matter of fact with me in his communication. Again, not, not supportive, not trying to pull the rug out from underneath me. I would say he was just middle of the road professional. Tony, my first impression of Tony is, man, this cat doesn't like me much. I don't know what I did to him or what he thinks I'm going to do to him. But Tony was almost, he was like a cat. You know, even if you have a cat, sometimes, you know, oh, this cat really likes me. But other times they don't give a shit about you. A cat's a cat, not like a dog. And Tony was like a cat. He was indifferent, just very indifferent. And, and that changed over time. And I think I learned fairly early on that Tony was, Tony wasn't at that point, a very outgoing person. Still not. He was a, he was a workhorse. I mean, he worked like a dog and he was super professional, but when it came to a conversation or chemistry, wasn't there. And, and at first I thought, wow, this cat, he he doesn't want me here at all. And that wasn't it. That was just Tony. And I learned that over time. But initially I thought, oh, hmm, I don't know how this is going to work. <laughs> right. But I didn't, I didn't worry about it. I didn't go out of my way to fix it or, or exacerbate it. I just acknowledged it. Hey guys, Eric Bischoff here. And just want to call a quick time out. I want to tell your listeners about what I've been telling everybody at over at 83 weeks. 
quite a while now about all the cool things that are happening over at adfreeshows.com. We get a peek behind the curtain on an all-new edition of The Insiders as Conrad sits down with former WWE writer and current Impact producer Jimmy Jacobs. You start to realize that you're one weird interaction with events away from being in the doghouse or being fired. Wow. And then you just start to behave in a way to try to not get fired. And then your ideas become ideas in an effort to not get fired. And pretty soon you have a whole bunch of people that are playing to not lose. Want to pick the brain of the Podfather? We just celebrated episode 50 of Ask Conrad, our Q&A mailbag series where Conrad answers your questions. So to me, Solo kind of has the Arn Anderson syndrome right now, where Arn was as good of a wrestler as anybody on the card, but because he's standing next to Ric Flair, he's just not going to get that opportunity. And even if he did, I think fans would say, oh yeah, I love Arn, but why isn't Rick here? Uh, and it feels a little bit like shake and bake in the old Talladega Nights. And I understand the Will Ferrell character was winning all the time, but what if the other fellow won? What if Mr. John C. Riley won? And I think that's kind of the solo circumstance. If you're looking for interactive experiences, ad-free shows members can now take part in the live tapings of the podcast and are now part of the show. Eric Jones, Josh Henney, Nathan, Mitchell, Coach Rosie, RJ, Amy's here. She came to the testicle festival. That's awesome. We get like one or two women, you know, every once in a while. And I just love it when we do. Um, thank you all for doing this with us. This is kind of fun. Amy Vaughn's here. Hey, Amy. This is fun. I dig this. This is a different kind of energy. I don't know why. Well, yeah, you're, you're performing for a crowd now. It's not just me anymore. That's just a small taste of what we've got waiting for you with four levels to choose from. See for yourself why ad-free shows is the best value in wrestling today. Sign up now at adfreeshows.com. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, when you're here, you're trying to quote unquote, learn the business. I'm sure. I mean, you, you picked up a lot of wrestling quote unquote wisdom. I'm sure from, from Vern Gagne and the AWA, but now you've got new mentors and you've mentioned before that dusty Rhodes spent a lot of time with you and sort of took you under his wing. Are you riding in the car with him from town to town when you do have to travel? I know you're just coming in mostly for TVs, but I'm sure there's some travel and we've heard over the years that business is done in the bars or business is done in the car or whatever. Who are you gravitating to and spending time with? Just dusty. Okay. Just dusty. I, you know, I also, I was not experienced enough, but I guess smart enough, intuitive enough, probably the better way to say it, to stay out of politics because even in AWA is much of a, just like it was a Petri dish, you know, compared to WCW uh, at that time, even. But I had seen enough of politics and realized early on that there's just certain conversations you know I didn't want to be a part of because I, I didn't want somebody else on the outside to see me engage in a conversation that they perceive to be political in nature or favoring one person or another person's side of a story or whatever. So I stayed completely. If I heard, if I was dressing in a room 
And I was listening to talent or other announcers getting into kind of like the high school, you know, rumor mill and backstage nonsense. I'd, I'd, I'd leave that room or move to another corner of the room because I want to be anywhere near it. I, I, I didn't want to be thrown into a situation that I didn't understand. So I just kept my nose clean. The only per- person I really talked to was Dusty. You know, occasionally, and obviously, you know, Diamond Dale's page because we worked together. I got to be pretty good friends with Teddy Long at that point in time. I worked a lot with Teddy. It's probably after I first started, but Teddy and I got along great, and I hung out with Teddy a lot. I could probably hung out early on. If there was anybody that I hung out with beyond DDP, eventually, it was Teddy Long. So when you're hanging out with Dusty, is it a deal where Dusty says, Hey, come on, kid, ride with me. Cause he knows hey, you probably don't know anybody or know how to do all this. Yeah. Way almost immediately. Like I didn't get a choice. Yeah. Like it was, it was already predetermined that I was going to ride with Dusty to TVs. I, love I, that. I, I don't think, I, I don't know why Dusty. you know, Dusty just, I don't know why Dusty did that. Dusty didn't know me. Right. He wasn't like a fan of my work. <laughs> I'm not sure he even watched me when I was in AWA. It's just, I think he just felt that he wanted to, I don't know, maybe protect me, maybe just help me get assimilated into the culture, if you will. And, right. you know, get my own momentum there and become a part of the team. Uh, and I think Dusty just felt like it might be a good idea to help me do that. I don't know. I'm grateful for it. Whatever his motivation was, I'm grateful for it, but I don't know what it was. Your first piece of criticism that would be written about in the observer came from Dave when he was critical of you calling a syndicated WCW main event show, which aired uh, a Jushin Liger and Oz tag match against Scott Norton and hero Saito. And you continually referred to Saito as hero Tatsuki. And he would be critical and say, listen, most of the audience doesn't even know and won't know, but when you watch a college basketball game and maybe you don't know any of those kids' names, the announcers at least have enough respect for what they're calling to know their names. Uh, it is neither here nor there, but he follows up very quickly with a compliment. I guess there was a promo with Medusa that maybe got a little sideways. You were quick to think on your feet and sort of save that segment. And he was complimentary there. But I am curious, did you even know that this, this critical side of wrestling, that there were quote unquote wrestling critics and journalists or whatever you want to call it? I mean, this is a very inside. I know that sounds silly in the context of today because the internet is what it is, but once upon a time, this was almost an underground newsletter that wasn't necessarily mainstream. Like you had to know somebody who knew somebody who had one sort of thing. Does any of that land on your radar where maybe guys are in the locker room and they're like, Hey, new guy, look, you made the rag sheet or whatever. No, I mean, I I was aware of the dirt sheets. Um, Wade Keller was based in Minneapolis. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Started about the same time as Dave Meltzer did maybe a little bit after. Um, So certainly I was aware and I guess because of the way, you know, I was brought up. Again, AWA, right? I, 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 I started to have the same views of people like Dave Meltzer. And at that point in time, Wade Keller, because Wade, Wade reported a lot like Meltzer did, a lot of speculation, a lot of rumors, fact, no sources. I mean, just stupid stuff. 
Um, so I just had a general disdain for people in that business, um, much like Vern and Greg did. You know, they looked down. They looked down at people like that for exposing the business. Right. So that was my general impression. But it was Masa Saito that I misidentified. And what was really weird is Saito worked in the AWA for a long time before I got to to, to work there. I was a fan of Saito's. I would remember distinctly him and Ken Patera, you know, throwing him or getting. A, allegedly throwing a boulder through a plate glass window at a McDonald's and going to jail for it. I had interviewed Masa Saito once I got into the AWA, eventually when he got out of jail and he was working for Vern. So how that happened, I don't know. I don't know if I was reading a format sheet and not paying attention to what was going on in post-production or what. But and how, how, you know, Vern was not viewing those favorably and, of course, the big news that it's going to shock the wrestling world is when Jim Hurd is out. Uh, this is one of those landmark moments in WCW history. Ding dong. The witch is dead and all that good stuff because boy, he had his enemies and I don't think that history has been fair to him. I mean, he did a lot. There were some good things that he did that happened on his watch. We would first see the whole steamboat flare trilogy on his watch Vader coming into WCW on his watch. The Steiners becoming what they became on his watch. Uh, Terry Funk's return on his watch. There's some really good stuff that happens there, including some corporate sponsorships that wrestling has chased ever since and never got a sneaker deal uh, over in the corner posts. They were wrapped in, in Coors, like a major beer sponsor, a sneaker sponsorship. Those are things that didn't happen before or after Jim heard, but still He's out now and he was a polarizing figure and not well liked in the quote unquote locker rooms and in the, with the quote unquote boys in the back, but is the guy who gave you this big paying gig. So I'm sure when you hear the news, you've got to be thinking, oh shit, that ain't good. What's your immediate reaction when you hear Jim Hurd's out? I, I was there that day. I was, I, th- I, I was there. I think I was in post-production that day. So I'm guessing it happened on a Tuesday, maybe a Wednesday, but probably a Tuesday. And I immediately, the minute I heard, I was down in the production facility. And when I heard, I immediately went up to the office or I was going up to the office because I wanted to thank Jim. You know, I didn't know. I I didn't know. I wasn't involved in the pod. I didn't know anything when it came to politics, office politics. I didn't. As I said, stayed away from it. Didn't want to hear about it. Leave the room if others were chatting. So I was ignorant, literally, um, in terms of what was going on behind the scenes. So when I got the call, said, hey, did you hear? Herd's been fired. I go, fuck, I got to go say thank you. And I dropped what I was doing, and I, I walked out of, I remember walking out of the production facility and I was going to go to the escalator. And as I was heading to the escalators, Jim Hurd was coming down the escalator and I caught, he was, and he was making a beeline. He wasn't going to take any pictures for posterity. Right. Uh, he was moving and I was across the atrium and I, I don't want to say I sprinted, but I picked up the pace quite a bit because I wanted to thank him. And I caught him just as he was at the doors, you know, going out, to the, uh, to the parking area. And he, he was upset. You know, his, I thanked him. It was a brief conversation. took about a minute or so, but I want to make sure he knew how much him hiring me 
meant to me and to my family. And there was no way I was going to let him leave the building without telling him that. And I did. And I, you know, he had tears in his eyes, not because of what I said. He, he was already kind of, he wasn't crying. I don't want to make it sound like he was bawling, but he, he was upset and he acknowledged what I said. We didn't, he, it wasn't like a conversation. I did the talking. I thanked him in a sincere way. He acknowledged, said, thank you. Shook my hand and walked out the door. That was it. It's, uh, it's always fascinating to hear the different stories that surround Jim Hurd. but what do you remember about the way everyone else responded to that? Is it just in your mind, chaos business as usual that some, could you tell that there was some opportunity? I mean, here's what I mean. You wrote in your book. I don't want to characterize all these people as sharks, but I think anyone who had any sort of political stroke with internal broadcasting at the time had a self-serving interest, whether it was Jim Ross, Tony Schiavone, Dusty Rhodes, or the Sharon Sedellos of the world. Kip Fry was naive about the wrestling business and easily swayed on decisions. He didn't have a real clear cut vision for how to turn the company around. So the sharks tried to manipulate him to fulfill their own self-serving agenda. Initially, I think Kip made a good impact. He increased management's communication with the talent on creative decisions, for example, but within 60 or 90 days, he was overwhelmed by forces. He didn't understand and shown the door. This is a pretty tumultuous time here, you know, and I'm sure part of you is thinking, Ooh, I don't want to go back to heat in my house with kerosene. I need this to, to, to stick around, but you do see some of the political maneuvering. And one of them is your quote unquote mentor. The guy who, who brought you in under his wing, dusty Rhodes, And well, two others were guys that you were hired to make their lives miserable and just lay out sort of the lay of the land and, and try to take yourself back and remember what in the heck you were thinking in this time. By the time this happened, I had been around WCW for a period of, you know, I don't know how long it was, a year, whenever it was, eight months. Got a little different feel for things. And it was, I want to be really careful with this, Conrad, because I don't want to mischaracterize it, but I also want to be honest about it. Everybody was jockeying for position. Everybody. The fact that there wasn't really strong leadership, and I'm not being critical of Jim Hurd because I didn't really work under him long enough to have an impression of what kind of a leader he was. But my sense was there were a lot of people that were really happy he was gone. In fact, I didn't hear anybody that, you know, expressed disappointment. Not everybody was cheering, but there was, there were those who were, but it's like, it opened the door for an already politically semi-toxic culture to rise up and look for ways to take advantage of the situation. That's a really good way of saying that. I heard conversations, and I'm not even going to mention the names because the names aren't really important, but people who I was somewhat close to and did spend quite a bit of time with. And again, I tried to be neutral, right? I tried to stay Switzerland on politics because I thought that was the best way to survive. 
Um, as lawyers at Bisco told me when I first got there, just keep your head down, kid, do your work and you've got a job for life. Right. You know? So I took that advice and to heart, but over periods of time, I could be with one person who was a senior management person. And once I had been around there long enough, they were comfortable making certain statements in front of me about other senior management. And then I find myself having a beer with, or being around in proximity to that same person. And he's burying this person. And that, that kind of toxicity was everywhere. It was a very, very politically charged environment. I think probably because it was a new company. You know, when the Ted by Crockett Promotions out of bankruptcy, 1988, launched WCW, I think, in 1989. I'm sure somebody's going to tell me how wrong I am, but whatever. Get the idea. You know, 90, 91, I'm hired in 91. The company's 12 or 18 months old for all intents and purposes. You know, by the time Herd gets lost, what is it, two years old, two and a half years old? So, I mean, it's still kind of young for a company. And a lot of the people that came into WCW came from territories that were already pretty toxic and political so that they just brought that with them, you know, and it was inherent in a way. And it became more so after Heard left because everybody saw maybe an opportunity for them. And Kip Fry came in. And it was ass kissing time. Once Kip was net. Now, the one person I will say that didn't fall into that category, I want to make sure, is Tony Schiavone. Tony was always Switzerland. I never heard Tony say a bad thing about anybody that I can remember. I don't remember having the impression of, oh, this is a guy I got to be, I got to watch out. For, I got to be careful what I say around this guy. He wasn't that guy. Most everybody else was. It was a very, very toxic situation. But by the time Kip Fry came in, it was ass kissing time. Right. And, and Kip tried. I mean, he was an attorney. He wasn't, he was an entertainment attorney, but that doesn't mean he knows anything about the art of entertainment. He knows about the law of entertainment, but he doesn't know anything about the art of entertainment, but he tried, you know, he, he you know, I remember one of the first things that I remember he did was uh, he would have a meeting when Kip Fry had a log cabin on a, I was never invited to go, but, you know, Dusty, Tony Schiavone, Jim Ross, a couple other people that were part of the creative team and the production team, senior management, they would go like every Thursday or Friday, whatever it was to Kip's house and spend the day there at kind of a retreat offsite, you know, laying stuff out. So Kip had some good ideas and he had a lot of enthusiasm. The other thing I remember Kip doing, which I thought was weird, but I, you know, I didn't judge it. I just thought it was weird. As he reached out, man, he, he invited, I think he invited like a lot of the dirt sheet writers at the time. Uh, to, he, he wanted to open the door. He wanted to have a dialogue with them to prevent some of the negative impact that these dirt sheets were having on Turner Broadcasting and WCW within Turner Broadcasting. I've touched on that before. Um, you know, guys like Dave Meltzer and others who at the time were spreading these rumors and the innuendo and, you know, relaying information that they were fed by people with an agenda, you know, all of that stuff. If you're a wrestling fan or you read that stuff, you, you may find it interesting. I feel like you're getting a look behind the scenes and I understand that appeal, but what fans don't understand 
is sometimes those rumors and incorrect information stating rumors as fact affects people. It affects management who don't know any better. It affects talent a lot. And I saw it. And I think one of the things that Kip did was try to fix that by inviting the Wade Kellers and whoever else he invited to come and basically do, it wasn't a press conference because it wasn't meant to be taped or anything, but, or presented as a live format like Tony Khan does now or, 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 or Triple H does occasionally. It was more like, hey, if you guys got questions, come to me and I'll do my best to answer them type of thing. And I, I, I understood that attempt didn't last long. Um, but he tried. Look, Kip tried. He had, he, had all, he had the best intentions. He just didn't. He wasn't cut out for that job. Well, I'll tell you what, you knew you were cut out for any job. You knew you were ready to take on all challengers. I know you were confident because you had that killer head of hair. You've talked about it a lot. You know, yes, Mrs. B deserves her props, but let's not discount the hair either, daddy. (laughs) And you don't have to choose between better hair growth and your health. There is a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness. Go get ahead of thinning hair. With Nutrafol's whole body approach to hair growth, no drugs, no compromises. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement clinically shown to improve your hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage. Nutrafol's hair growth, Nutris, woof, we're going to take a stab at this. Nutraceuticals. There you go. Nutraceuticals. There we go. Nutraceuticals. See, why don't we just tag you in? Go beyond genetics to multi-target the root causes of thinning, including stress, hormones, nutrition, metabolism, aging, and your lifestyle through whole body health. Physician formulated using natural medical grade ingredients, Nutrafol's drug-free patented technology provides consistent, reliable results without compromising your sexual health. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three and six months. Nutrafol is also trusted and recommended by more than 3000 top doctors. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com slash men and entering the promo code 83 weeks to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere. And it's available only to us customers and for a limited time. Plus you get free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com slash men. That's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com slash men. And the promo code is 83 weeks. And I know that this is uh, something that we joke about here that, you know, a lot of your success was your great hair, but I do think that a lot of folks maybe struggle with, with their confidence because it's something that they're not in control of, but they can have a little more control with Nutrafol. Isn't that right, Eric? It is. And, you know, I, I have fun making fun of my hair and, and bragging about my hair because I had a lot to brag about. But the truth is when we're not having fun, self-confidence is everything. And if having a fuller head of hair gives you that just a little bit of extra confidence going into a meeting, a relationship, whatever, by all means, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you? You want to look your best. You want to. It's just part of life, right? Is the impressions you make on people. And if you have the ability to 
give yourself a thicker, healthier, younger looking head of hair. Why the hell not? I mean, why not? Like, and I joke about it, but you know, I got hired because I look like a local weatherman. I just had that weatherman look. Yeah. And a lot of that had to do with my hair. It looked like I put it on in the morning when I got up, you know, it was just like perfect. Of course I, you know, used a lot of hairspray and stuff and it so it wouldn't move, but I'm kind of joking about having a good head of hair is what got me my career, but I'm kind of not. So give it a shot. You never know. Give it a shot. Look at that hair. Look at that hair. It's crazy. Come on now. That's awesome hair. Nutrafol is physician formulated to be 100% drug free. They use natural medical grade botanicals and consistently effective dosages to help you get the most reliable results. Now, healthier hair growth takes time. You'll begin to experience thicker, stronger, faster growing hair in three to six months. So get started right now. Visit Nutrafol.com. Take their hair wellness quiz for personalized product recommendations that, that are unique to your hair's needs. And uh, why not save some money, man? It's uh slash men promo code 83 weeks N U T R a F O L.com slash men. And the promo code is 83 weeks. Uh, so let's keep it rolling here and, and let's talk a little bit about, uh, the next big move. Of course, we know Kip Fry's not long for this world. Bill Watts is coming into the company and boy, there's, uh, you talk about controversial figures. We talked about Jim Hurd before. Bill Watts had a bit of a reputation. Is it one you had heard about beforehand, or what was your expectation when you first heard the news that Bill was coming in? I remember exactly where I was. I don't remember the room number of which room I was in, but again, I was at the Omni Center. Uh, I was I was in the hotel, probably waiting to go down when my scheduled time was ready. Uh, but I, again, I got a phone call you know, telling me about Bill Watts and I didn't know Bill Watts. I'd never heard anything about Bill Watts. Didn't have zero, zero impression. So I called Vern Gagne. I said, Hey Vern, what do I need to know about Bill Watts? And Vern put Bill over. Now they were, they were the same, you know, they came from the same era kind of, they had the same belief system, um, the same, I I think antagonistic view of Vince McMahon by virtue of the fact that Vince basically crushed all the territories. So they had a lot in common and, you know, they're hard nosed, stubborn, old school wrestlers. So Vern put them over and, and Vern said, basically he said, he'll shoot straight with you. He'll look in the eye. He won't bullshit you. You know, he's tough, but he's fair. I think is pretty much what Vern said to me. I went, okay, I could deal with tough and fair. That doesn't bother me. Um, so that was it. And I, 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 I took that and brought it with me to my first couple of interactions with Bill Watts. You know, first of all, he was my boss. So I, I owed him that respect regardless of whether I thought he was a good guy or not. He was my boss. Um, he effectively signed my paychecks, not literally, but effectively. So, I was all in and it wasn't until a couple of months went by that. I went, eh, I don't think so. (laughs) 
You wrote, don't necessarily, I was going to call for her and say, Vern, I don't know, man, if we're talking about the same guy, is there a Bill Watts Jr. I need to know about or another Bill Watts? Because this guy's kind of a dick. But I, I didn't. I kept my mouth shut. You wrote in your book that you think the Bill Watts era was the darkest, most miserable time in the company's history and that his impact was devastating. You still feel that way? Can you expand on that? I mean, we've talked, it's been talked about by me and others enough. You know, I just, Bill was very, he was a throwback, you know, and it's, it's funny now that I we're talking about this because I, you know, I talked about how Vern got to put him over because Bill and Vern were uh, the same when it came to their view of the business. Both of them were throwbacks that were locked in the seventies. Both of them believed Vern tried it and failed. Um, and I think Bill Watts still believed and was about to fail that going back to the way wrestling used to be produced and the and recreating the culture that used to exist back in the seventies and, and perhaps into the early eighties before WWF came along uh, was the solution. And, you know, examples, uh, Bill Watts was part of this. I understand, but Bill Watts was like, no, man, we, we Here's what we're going to do. We're not lighting the audience. I don't want to see the audience. All I want to see are the wrestlers in the ring. So shut all the lights off in the venue. I want, I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to see anybody at ringside. Well, that's exaggeration. I don't want to see people beyond the fifth row, for example, and the rest of it should all be black. And there should be that old fashioned big light that just lights up the ring and nothing else around it like wrestling used to be done back in the sixties in a studio. And I was like, well, that's not going to work. You've got WWE over here and it's like a Hollywood production and you're turning off all the lights so nobody can see anything. It seems to be kind of back ass words, but you know, did it take the mats away from the side of the ring. So it's actually dangerous if somebody goes out on the floor. No, dude, it is actually dangerous. That doesn't make any sense. And I, now in retrospect, 2020 hindsight, I kind of understand now what Bill was trying to do, but the way he went about doing it was just wrong. And it wasn't what the product needed. The product needed to be updated, to be competitive, not thrown back to 1977. So I immediately started going, no, 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 This isn't, no, 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 no. But, you know, I'm a third string announcer. What do I care? I'm just going to do my work. But inside, I was like, this is stupid. This doesn't make sense. Now, add to that Bill's personality. He was a bully. He tried to intimidate. He loved intimidating people. And I'm sure he was good at it. I'm sure a lot of people were intimidated by him. I wasn't. I just thought he was a big bucket-headed bully. I've seen him before. Not impressed, but I watched the way he treated, especially wrestling talent. I think he resented talent in a way. Wow. At least some of them, not all of them. He had his favorites, trust me. But his general attitude towards talent was pretty negative. And there were certain talents that he just liked to screw with. And I'm just like, man, why? <laughs> well, whatever. But the, the, because of his personality and the way he treated people, I mean, right off the bat, you know, he started cutting talent contracts and trying to save money by paying people less. Well, how's that going to work? You know, if you got, if you can't afford somebody, let them go. 
don't take money out of their pocket. Keep them around and expect them to be good on morale. That's kind of a bad idea. Now, if you can negotiate with people and try to figure, if, if, if you came to me, Conrad, if I was under contract to you and you said, look, I can't afford to pay you $100 a week anymore. Times are tough. Business has changed. So here's what I'd like to do to try to help me. And if you can help me, I'll help you. We'll figure this out. Okay, I'm having that conversation and I'm going to feel pretty good about that conversation. But just to say, all right, I can't afford 100 bucks a week anymore. I'm going to give you 50 bucks a week, take it or leave it. I don't want that guy around. How do you think that person's going to respond in public? How do you think that person's going to talk behind the scenes or at work? Everybody was miserable. Add to the bullying aspect of it. It just it was just really negative. Let's uh, let's talk about what changed for you under Watts. You sort of said at the top of the show when I was asking about, hey, did you just move straight away? And you said, no, that really happened under Watts. I'm under the impression that not only did you move down there under Watts, that maybe your workload expanded as well. What, what, what all changed for you under Watts as far as just your real life? Yeah. And what was interesting, and I know I just talked about, you know, how Watts was, um, cutting talents, checks and stuff. Ironically, I got one of my first raises from Bill Watts, but it was a part of hey, we, if you're going to work here, you need to live here. We're not going to fly you back and forth every week. I understood that. I didn't want to leave Minnesota. I, I, I loved Minnesota. I had friends. My mom and dad were there. My brother and sister, Lori's entire family were there. You know, she's got a big family. I just had my brother and sister and my mom and dad, but Lori's, you know, cousins upon cousins and aunts and uncles and grandmothers and all that. So it wasn't that I was dying to get out of Minnesota, but I understood the reality of it too. You know, they keep flying me there, there and back every week for what amounted to really about six hours of work every week. Eh, didn't make sense. So I, you know, Lori and I were both willing to move and we packed up, you know, we had one car at the time. We were still digging out. You know, we had had about a year to dig out from the hole we had gotten into working for the AWA and uh, we gotten out of that hole, but we didn't have a lot, you know, um, had one one car, I think it was a nineteen eighty eight Olds Cutlass or something like that. But but Turner moved us down. They paid for our moving, which was really nice because that was a big move. We didn't have a lot, but it's Minnesota to Atlanta. Paid for our move, and we had saved up enough money to put a down payment on a house. Um, Michelle, Dusty's wife, was a real estate agent. Had recently sold a house to Diamond Dallas Page. So when Dusty found out I was moving, uh, he had Michelle give us a call. And I, I liked Michelle a lot. So did, so did Lori. And she, there was a house for sale. Like literally you could hit it with a Frisbee just down the street from the house that DDP lived in. So we bought that house and furnished it. And we're pretty happy. You know, initially we're pretty happy with the move. It's uh, it's fascinating, you know, that, in an era where Brian Pillman and others are, are being asked to take massive pay cuts, you somehow uh, get a bit of a bump. I, I am curious as you're starting to get more acclimated, you've been here under Kip Fry now and now, or Jim Hurd and then Kip Fry and now Bill Watts. Are you starting to get comfortable enough to have an opinion? I'm not saying that to be funny, but I'm saying when you, when you're the new guy, you probably 
you know, keep your head up and your nose clean and your mouth shut, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And as you get more familiar and you develop some relationships, me just knowing you, like I think I do, you probably say, Hey, have we ever thought about, Hey, what if, you know, I've been thinking like, I've heard a lot of those, uh, and they're, and they're usually really, really good ideas. And I think as this thing evolves, maybe some of that was in the rearview mirror or am I just guessing incorrectly? No, you're absolutely right. Now time you're right. Because as time went on and I got more familiar, not only familiar with the culture, which was still challenging from time to time because it was so political and toxic. Um, but I, I got, I knew I learned, I was more comfortable navigating it. Right. I knew where the landmines were as opposed to tiptoeing through a field because you don't know where they are. Now I knew where the landmines were and, and, and felt more comfortable in the office as a result of that. But while Bill Watts, during this period of time, I really started thinking about the product more, what we saw on television from an analytical perspective, from a production perspective, not from a creative perspective because I just never, I didn't feel at that time like I had any feel for that at all, but I did on the production side and I just started looking at WCW's production, looking at WWE's production and looking at production of other things like, uh, I don't know, American gladiators, I think was around at the time and was kind of cutting edge. You know, there's a lot of shows that are still like that, you know, American Ninja warrior, I think, you know, on NBC or whatever it is. You know, it's all basically American Gladiators, just in a different format. But I started looking at what was working in in other television products that weren't wrestling, but appealed to the same audience. That's a, that's the best way to say it. And I looked at WWE's. I didn't look at their creative. I looked at their production. I looked at their pacing. I looked at their timing. I looked at their strategies, and started looking at WCW's in a more. Um, I guess, technically critical eye. While I'm evolving, I guess, that way, I started having just my own what-if ideas that I might not necessarily share with other people. But I started thinking about developing a television show that involved wrestling and wrestlers targeted towards kids that didn't involve wrestling. And started talking to Jason Hervey, who I met during that period of time. Jason was dating or living with or whatever, uh, Missy Hyatt. And Jason would come in occasionally. Keep in mind, Jason was still, you know, he was an active member of the cast of ABC's Wonder Years, which is a super high-rated show at that time on ABC. So I, you know, started talking to Jason. And one day I I pulled Jason aside and I said, look, dude, I know you're going to be in next week. I've got an idea I want to run by you. And I had built up storyboards and I've been working on this for quite a bit and had a a model built of what the set would look like, had paid somebody to do it. And Jason came in and he came over to the Omni. I was staying at the Omni um, for some reason. Maybe we were waiting for our house to close or something. I don't know what it was, but I remember sitting down with Jason and walking him through this thing. And he was like, wow, this is, this is kind of cool. And Jason had a lot of relationships in Hollywood because he had grown up in the entertainment, but he was doing 
television commercials when he was four or five years old and doing movies and all kinds of things. He had a pretty good television resume by the time he was 17 or 18 years old, but he knew a lot of people. And Jason, and I had set up a, or Jason had basically set up a meeting with a, a, a woman by the name of Molly miles, Molly, Molly miles at that time was the head of children's programming at the Fox network. Fox network at that time had a Saturday morning kids block where they had cartoons and programming targeted towards children, teens and preteens. So we went and pitched the show to, to Molly and she was like, wow, I really like this. Let's, let's get over to business affairs and see what we can put together. And that, what I described to you probably took place. It was a meeting with Miley and then a week or two weeks went by phone calls. Da, da, da. So it wasn't like all at one point in time, I went from here's a pitch to, okay, let's do this. But during that period of time, that couple of weeks from the time we met with Molly to the time I was back in Atlanta, now I'm back in the Bill Watts world again. <clears throat> and I'm going, this world is now for me. It's too negative. People are miserable. It was just awful. And there was no hope. It wasn't, I didn't believe that the Bill Watts approach to fixing WCW had an ice cubes chance in hell of surviving because I had lived through it with the AWA. Listening to Bill talk about WCW was a lot like listening to Vern trying to decide how he was going to fix AWA. They both had the same point of view. And I didn't believe it was ever going to work. And it, it, it got to the point where being around it wasn't fun for me anymore. I still needed the money. Well, you know, I hadn't, I was making good money. It was probably, I think at that point, I was making 125 grand a year was my next check or my next contract. So I was making good money, but not like, Talent money, you know, I wasn't making five and six or 750 grand a year. I wasn't making FU money at that time. But I said, this is not for me. I, I can't, it's not a positive thing. Can't do it. So I had made up my mind then. I told Laura, I said, I'm, I'm just going to ride this out. I'm going to let my contract expire because I think I only had like a one year deal or a two year deal. And I'm going to just let my contract expire and then I'm out of here. I was going to move, we were going to move to LA. I was going to take my shot in Los Angeles, developing and producing television outside of wrestling. And uh, Bill Watts eventually got fired, and I threw my hat in the ring. And Let's talk about that, because when Bill Watts gets fired, there's been a lot of discussion about who should have been the next guy. And depending on who you believe, there were a few different folks who... Uh, as you said, threw their hat in the ring. And from what I understand, it came down to maybe, maybe not just a resume, but more of a business plan. What is your vision? What would you do with WCW? And I've heard over the years that Jim Ross, Tony Schiavone, yourself, folks like that were asked or pursued the opportunity to put themselves out there. Now I've never heard this from your version of things. When you hear that Bill Watts is out, obviously there's a, a huge sigh of relief across the locker room and maybe even yourself like, okay, maybe there's some positive change coming. Cause it certainly felt like it was on a downward spiral who puts out there. We got to figure out who the next boss is going to be. And, and, and we want to know who's interested in that. How does that become an opportunity where you feel like I can throw my hat in the ring? What's that process like? Again, you have to kind of 
understand where my head was at. I was in my mind, I was already gone. I was, I had already committed to myself and my wife, my kids that I, I was going to leave WCW. I was happy the bill was gone, but it didn't change my immediate plans. I knew that I wanted to do more in television than just be an announcer. And there's nothing wrong with being an announcer, by the way. I don't want to, I don't want it to come off that way, but the way my brain worked and the things that actually made me happy and challenged required of me to do something more than just be good on the mic or be decent at play by play or have great hair. <laughs> so um, I was already kind of gone. And then Bill Shaw, when, when Watts was fired and again, I don't want to spend a lot of time beating up on Bill Watts, but and everybody knows the story, right? It's, no need to go into it again. But when when Watts was fired, Ted Turner assigned Bill Shaw to run WCW. Bill Shaw was the vice president of human resources. Now, just like Kip Fry, who was an entertainment lawyer, was tagged in to oversee WCW. And that made no sense. Bill Shaw was the vice president of human resources for all of Turner Broadcasting, like all of it, every division. That's a big freaking job. But Bill was really good at it, like really good at it. And Bill and Ted had a very, very good relationship. And if you think about it, I didn't think about it at the time, but you think about it because of the nature, particularly in, in some of the things that Bill Watts did to get himself fired. Um, human resources was what WCW really needed more than anything else because it was internally as a, as a company. And at, even at that time, you know, culture has changed a lot. Human resources within big corporations has changed a lot since this time or that time. But WCW really needed a strong HR person because that was fundamentally one of WCW's biggest issues as, as an operating division of Turner Broadcasting. It was a mess. And Bill was assigned to fix it. So the first thing that right after, I mean, it could have been the same day, maybe the next day, Bill Shaw called a meeting for all of the WCW employees, everybody, except for talent. And he basically laid it down and said, this was, you know, we're coming off a of bad, pretty high profile, racially charged statements that were made. Hank Aaron got involved. I mean, it was ugly. And Bill came down and laid down the law. He was, he was pretty firm. He didn't threaten anybody. He wasn't trying to intimidate anybody. That wasn't Bill's style. But Bill said, look, here's the situation. Ted wants this company to be successful. But it, it, unless you guys, unless this team can turn this company around, Ted's going to pull the plug. And we're going to run this like a company. We're going to run this like other parts of Turner Broadcasting. Because at the time, WCW was kind of like an island on, unto itself in, within Turner. Nobody really wanted to interface with WCW in terms of the other divisions of Turner. It really was the redheaded stepchild. It was like, yeah, we have that, but let's pretend we don't. 
I'm just, I don't know why that redhead stepchild thing. That's a bad thing to say. There's a lot of people with red hair that probably walk around and go, God, do people really feel that way about me? <laughs> I don't mean to imply that, but we were the, we were part of the family, but everybody in the, everybody in the family other than us didn't want us to be. And it was apparent. We knew that you could feel it. Right. And when Bill came down, I said, we're going to, you are going to operate like the rest of this company and you're going to turn this around and we're going to pull the plug. And then he said, and here's one of the things we're going to do. We are going to hire. I remember this is the thing that Bill said that made me go, Oh, maybe I'll stick around a little longer. He said, this WCW, yes, it involves professional wrestling, but it is a television company. Mm. It produces television for Turner Broadcasting, which isn't was is a television company. And that's how we're going to operate. Okay, well, that at least makes sense. And then he said, We're going to hire an executive producer. And that executive producer is going to come in and make our product at least competitive. And when he said that, I went, huh, that's interesting. They're going to hire an executive producer. And then he opened up the door and he said, you want to throw your name in the hat? If, if anybody in this room wants to throw their name in the hat, throw your name in the hat. We're going to be going outside of WCW as well. We're going to be going outside of Turner Broadcasting, looking for someone that could come in and make this television product competitive. And we're not bringing any more wrestling people to try to figure that out. We're going to bring in TV people. Now that excited me. That was a, that was a suggestion of a change in direction that I'm sure some people, you know, the wrestling people probably didn't get too excited about, but I was because it, it indicated a change in the right direction. And when he opened the door and said, if you don't throw your name in, if you're in this room, you don't throw your name in hat by all means. I went home after that feeling pretty good. And I said to Lori, I said, I, you know, I was ready to pack my bags. I was already looking at apartments in Los Angeles and planning ahead and all that. And right. Getting excited about that. I thought maybe, I don't, why not? And maybe, and Lori said, absolutely. Why not? Why would you not do that? It's what you want to do anyway. And you've got some, you know, background there and they know who you are. What's the worst that can happen? Worst that'll happen is I'm going to go do what I was going to do anyway. Got nothing to lose. Screw it. So I threw my name in the hat and it was over. It wasn't like overnight. It was a series of interviews. I think I probably had three different interviews with four with Bill Shaw. Okay. And each one got a little more interesting. And at one point in one of those, and it might've been one of the early, I think it was probably the second meeting. Bill said, okay, what would you do different? Right. First meeting was kind of a get to know you thing. You know, where'd you come from? Why are you here? How'd you end up here? What's your background? Simple stuff. By the second meeting, it was more specific. All right. Well, what would you do differently? What does WCW need to do that it currently isn't doing to be more competitive? And, th- and I, I had spent, I don't know how much money I spent, a couple grand probably, on this big storyboard and a model of the, the set and that, I, that I used to pitch to Molly Miles at, at Fox. 
And I had that at home. So I thought, I'm going to bring this to the meeting. Because the idea that I pitched to Molly was, it was kind of like a called kids team challenge, but basically it was pairing a, a young kid up with a wrestler to compete against other kids and other wrestlers. And it was never going to get physical. It was, it was just fun. Like kind of a junior American, you know, comp, if, if athletic comp, athletic games competition for kids with wrestlers as their mentors or coaches is essentially what the idea was. And I thought, well, I'm just going to bring all this in and say, see, this is an example of how you can extend your brand into another audience that you don't already have to try to build a bridge and connect to that audience. And I took out my storyboards. This is, here's an example of, you know, this could be a WCW project. At that point, it could have been, right? It wasn't initially created to be, but at that point, it could have been. And I told Bill, you know, Fox is sitting on this. It's, you know, in development, which is another story, but, and I think Bill looked at that and I don't know that he was impressed. You, you, you know, hopefully someday you'll interview Bill. I know that we tried to get that done and just schedules didn't match up, but stay tuned. Yeah. It, it I think Bill looked at that and went, okay, well, I, I may not want to do that, but I like the thinking is the impression that I got. There was a lot of enthusiasm for I think more the way I presented the idea than the actual idea itself and the psychology behind the idea. And I ended up getting the gig as a result of that. I got the job because I was preparing to leave. <laughs> I was, I was making sure that if I was going to leave this, this gig that I could find another one. And I ended up using the tools and the assets that I needed to find my way out the door, I use those tools and assets to get a promotion. It sounds to me like what helped you get the gig is you didn't try to do what everybody was doing yesterday. You didn't say, well, here's what works in wrestling. We're just gonna, we're gonna do that better than we have been. You thought outside of the box, you painted outside of the lines, whatever those cliches are. You took a risk, you took a chance and, and I didn't want to cut you off, but you were telling the story. And when you, you told, talked about how, when you went home and you talked to Laurie about, Hey, I was getting ready to leave, but they just said, you know, there's an opportunity here. And she said something that when you said it, it gave me goosebumps because it was said to me as a young man, when I, I was fortunate enough when I was 17 to meet a late forties, early fifties, multimillionaire. And I said, Hey man, give me some advice. How do I wind up where you are? And he thought for a minute and he said, before you make any major decision, ask yourself two questions. One, what's the worst thing that could happen? And when you said that Laurie said that it was a goosebump moment for me over here in Huntsville. And two, if that thing happened, could you live with it? Like the worst thing that could happen is they give you the job, you try it and it doesn't work out, but at least then, you know, you tried, that's the worst thing. Could you live with the idea that you had this job and you failed versus I never had the job because I never tried. And I just love that Lori had that attitude way back when, Hey, what's the worst thing that could happen? Because that is the sort of moxie that you need to, to step out of the pack and separate yourself. And there's been stories from both Jim Ross and certainly Tony Schiavone. He's talked about it on our podcast on Wednesdays. What happened when that he put together a plan, he was asked to put together, not necessarily a resume, but Put it in writing. What would you like to see happen with WCW? And, and what would you do if you were allowed to run the company? And he wasn't sure he wanted to do it. He wasn't sure that 
Oh, I don't know that I can do that. I don't know that I should do that. Why me? And you said, why not me? Let's take a risk. Let's take a chance. And I don't know what Jr. presented, but I imagine, and everyone listening to this probably knows that Jr. is a traditionalist and Jr. probably thought, well, we need to do what cowboy did, but maybe not as heavy handed. Let's get back to our roots. Let's do more basic wrestling. JR's big on steak. You were big on sizzle. You were down to take risks and roll the dice and not just do what we've always done. And I think that's the reason you were successful. I really do. I really do think that's the reason you said, yeah, we, why can't we sign Hulk Hogan? Yeah, why, why can't we go live and head to head with Monday night raw? Why can't we, why can't we, why can't we? And it worked. Uh, I, I, I just love this episode and I love this story. And of course we know the news comes out. Meltzer would write on the morning of February 10th. And in a meeting of WCW department heads on the 12th, it was announced that Ole Anderson would take Watts position. And Eric Bischoff was named executive producer of all WCW television. The aftermath. What was, that, what was that date again? February 10th and 12th. February 10th and 12th. Where was Ric Flair in, in, in February 10th and 12th? Ric Flair was, was coming back to the WW to WCW from the WWF. He had just lost a loser leaves town match, uh, at the end of uh, January on Monday night raw. Uh, but he's still going to finish out and do some house show dates to fulfill his commitments. But even when he comes back, I guess it's part of the agreement that he can't wrestle on TV for X number of months. So he comes back and has to deal with Ole Anderson and, uh, Ole says something along the lines of. Hey, what, what good to me are you with, uh, with you just losing on TV here? So, yeah. And, and, and I know we're taking a little bit of a um, detour here, but did Rick had allowed, had, had Rick had much working experience with Oli? Was there a pre-existing relationship between Oli and Rick? Yes, they were all horsemen way back when, and Ole was in charge of course, oh, okay. of Georgia of Championship of Wrestling, and uh, Ole did not like Ric Flair. Okay, so that again, some of that toxic waste that people drag around with him was right there waiting for Rick when he got back. Ole uh, has done interviews in years since where he said, "I hated that fucking kid, and that's the reason I wanted him to be champion, so he'd get the fuck out of here." He thought the only way to have a good match was you had to have a long match, and he'd go out there and have the same goddamn match every night for sixty minutes. We're and ready. I heard that. So I heard that from Ole so many times. We're ready to go Can home. T- get out of here. So let's get back to the uh, the the Observer report. The aftermath of the announcement of the company restructuring on February second and the resignation of Bill Watts. Leaves the WCW company headed by Bill Shaw as president, Bob Dew as executive vice president, and the four department heads, Sharon Sadello, pay-per-view, Bischoff, television, Anderson, house shows and wrestling personnel, and Rob Garner, syndication. This is uh, a big moment. Obviously, wrestling is going to change forever here, but you don't quite yet have your hands on the wheel completely. How was it sort of working with Sadello and Anderson and do and Shaw and Garner, because this is not quite yet the, the Eric Bischoff show. No, it wasn't at all. And I think that's a, you know, a misconception that people have, and it's a natural one because you know, the, the way WCW was structured at that point in time was a little confusing. Didn't really make a lot of sense to be honest, but, but eventually it, you know, kind of worked itself out, but you know, Rob Garner was, I think he was vice president vice president of syndication. 
and also worked with ad sales, Turner Ad Sales, which was based in New York, because those two departments, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, and I, I was already very social with Rob. You know, I started in syndication and sponsorship sales and things like that. So that was probably one of the elements of the business of the wrestling business that at that time I knew best because I did it for a while and, and fairly successfully, relatively speaking. So it was easy for me to have, you know, fun, positive business conversations with Rob. So I had a great relationship with Rob. Sharon, I didn't have a bad relationship with Sharon. So I didn't have any relationship with her. Sharon was, uh, she's very bright. You know, she's a very intelligent woman. I think she graduated Syracuse University and been in marketing for a while. <clears throat> but she was a very quiet person. She's very reserved and kind of kept to herself. But she was also, in her own way, kind of an A personality when it came to her job and her work. And, But I didn't really have a relationship with her. Uh, Oli... There was a long time when I got along with Oli. Oli and I used to joke around all the time. You know, he's Minnesota. I was from Minnesota. You know, I, he knew I used to wrestle in, in high school and after high school and college and all that. And, you know, we'd be down in the production studio and looking at cuts and edits and things like that. And he'd grab me and, you know, we'd be wrestling around the control room. And, you know, I got along with Oli fine. I understood his sense of humor and I kind of dug it. Um, even his kind of gruff approach to communication. You know, I felt, I felt comfortable around it. So I had a pretty good relationship with Oli initially. Bob do. Um, I liked Bob a lot. Bob was, Bob was one of those guys. You could not, you could not, not like Bob do. He was just one of those guys that you walked into his office and say, Hey, how are you? He was happy to see he was genuine. He was outgoing. Bob do oversaw the Omni for Turner. That was his job before he got put into WCW. And I guess it kind of made sense on paper. Okay. This is a touring company. We do live events and venues. Why not have a venue guy on that side of the business? So I get along with Bob fine. He was, he was a fun person to be around initially. Uh, and you know, my world, yeah, I was in charge of television, but I wasn't in charge of talent. I wasn't in charge of creative um, the only thing I was in charge of was like lights, graphics, venue selections, the physical production of the show, not the creative element that went into the show, if that makes sense. But I was content with that because there was a lot of work that needed to be done in that regard. So that was it initially. Um, Dusty, I guess, worked under Oli. If, if Oli was put in charge of talent and operations and Dusty was still booking, so that, that would put Dusty under Oli, if I remember right. So, yeah, that was, that was and I got along with everybody initially. It wasn't until afterwards that, you know, things started falling apart a little bit. Well, we got to talk about the uncomfortableness now here for a moment. Jim Ross wanted this job. You got it. Uh, you were hired to be the self-professed C-string announcer. And of course, Jr. was in that top spot. He's the a team and, uh, you sort of leapfrog him here. And of course, hindsight is 2020, but you wrote in your book, 
that JR sort of had to be Watts hatchet man. And you really didn't enjoy working with JR. And as the story goes, when JR reaches out to Vince and then Bill Shaw about his deal, Shaw comes to you to discuss letting him out of the deal. And you ultimately make the decision to let JR go. And it's been something that JR has been pretty sore about at times. And would even say that he held your mini fridge and other things, uh, other appliances that he had in WCW storage hostage. This is, uh, <laughs> unfortunate. What do you remember about the JR departure? Look for better or worse. JR believed in bill Watts and they had a long standing relationship, but I mean, JR probably owed a good part of his success and career to Bill Watts. JR, I think, I never talked to him about this, but I'm guessing JR felt about Bill Watts much like I felt and still feel about Vern Gagne. You know, somebody gives you that opportunity that changes your life forever or, or, or gives you an opportunity that has a dramatic impact on your life in a positive way. I, I, how are you not loyal to that person? Even through their faults. I, I, I am. That's my nature. And I would imagine Jim's much the same way. Plus, Jim had a lot of the same perspectives and points of view creatively and how wrestling should be run as Bill Watts. Certainly, Jim had his own as well, but there was was, was a lot more in common with Bill Watts than with me, for example, or others. That was part of it. The other part of it was because they were so joined at the hip because of their previous relationship that everybody knew about because of Jim's support for Watts in WCW during a time when supporting Bill Watts with the intern broadcasting was not a healthy career choice, but Jim was already there. Jim, Jim tied himself very closely to Bill Watts and it worked for, it worked until it didn't. And once Bill Watts got fired, in my opinion, I never talked to Bill Shaw about this or anybody else. And I didn't even know for sure that Jim was trying to get the job as executive. I didn't find that out until well afterwards. Same with Tony. I didn't know Tony was trying to get the job. Um, But I think Jim was guilty by association. I think, you know, when, when the shit hit the fan with Watts, Jim was standing right there to get splattered with it first. And that probably had a lot more to do with why he didn't get hired than anything else. In a lot of ways, Jim had, a, well, not in a lot of ways, in almost every way, Jim had much more experience than I did, even in television. Jim was a very detailed producer. Jim was a really good producer, still is, when, when he wants to be or given the opportunity to be. But he very, you know, television is nothing more than a combination of a lot of really good details. And Jim was a very detail-oriented person. He was very detail-oriented in his play-by-play. You know, you sit down and watch Jim, because Jim worked with me when I first got there. said, okay, kiddo, this is how I do it. And you sit down and you look at a format that Jim Ross was sitting down to to call, whether it was live or tape. Man, it was, it was very complete. 
knew when he was going to pitch the WCW magazine. He knew when he was going to pitch a pay-per-view. He knew when he was going to pitch what's coming up later on in the show. He knew when he was going to pitch what's coming up next week. He knew when, I mean, he just had it all laid out and precisely in a way that flowed and created the right sense of timing and energy in the show. So things didn't just feel random. He was really good at that. Um, but I think he just had too much Bill Watts splattered all over him. And once I was hired, and I don't remember the timeline, but probably shortly after the announcement, <clears throat> Bill Shaw came to me and said, hey, Ross is under contract. Well, let's talk about before that conversation. Bill came to me and said, he didn't ask me. He said, Eric, I'm going to put Jim Ross, who is still under contract, making good money, by the way, I'm going to put him under Rob Garner and have him work with Rob in syndication and ad sales yeah. as a liaison. I don't know if they're selling ads, but working with Turner ad sales to try to find opportunities within WCW to enhance advertising opportunities. Yes. So I'm going to put those two together. That's where we're going to put Jim Ross. I went, okay, fine with me. I didn't care. I didn't dislike Jim at all. Um, I respected Jim. I didn't think too much of it. I, I guess I assumed, right? Because I wasn't tight with Jim, but I assumed, hey, you know, Watts gets fired. He's get moved over to another division. He's keeping his check. He's keeping his contract. I would look at that, if it was me, as a win. I would recognize the fact that I'm getting shuffled around a little bit, and I may not be happy with it, but I'm not getting shit canned. I'm still getting paid, and there's a chance I can work back into the situation I'm, I really want. Evidently, that wasn't, you know, Jim took it harder than that, and I understand why. And then Bill Shaw came to me and said, Jim wants out of his contract. What should we do? I said, well, if he doesn't want to be here, why would you want him here? Why do you want somebody that doesn't want to be here? How do you think that's going to impact morale? Right. How is that going to end up ultimately being a positive move? You don't want people that don't want to be around. It's like being in a relationship with someone that doesn't want to be in a relationship with you. How would you do that? And I just, I basically said that to Bill. I said, but Bill, if he doesn't want to be here, let him go. And, and Bill said to me, I'll say, well, what if he goes to WWE? I said, then he goes to WWE. It's not going to change anything. It's not like WWE's business is going to all of a sudden go through the roof because Jim Ross showed up. Right. Um, eh, it is what it is. It's, I would rather have him go to WWE than stay here and be miserable and make the people around him miserable. We've got enough of that. We've been going through that since the day I walked in the doors is what I'm thinking. I didn't say that to Bill. I was more respectful, but in my mind, that's where my head was at. I was like, fuck it. If you don't want to be here, get rid of him. Otherwise he's going to be running around here, pissing and moaning and making everybody else miserable. And we, we did, we had a lot of that. Even before Watts, we had a lot of that. Certainly during Watts, we had even more of that. And that's the thing that we wanted to, Again, from an HR perspective, that was unhealthy. So I was supportive of Bill letting him out of his contract, but somehow that's been conveniently or was a long time ago. And Jim and I are way cool, but that, that turned into Bischoff fired Jim Ross. I didn't fire Jim Ross. I let Jim Ross 
I encouraged Bill Shaw to let him out of his contract to go do what he wanted to do. But I was the bad guy for that. Well, uh, nobody's a bad guy at camper max. We're excited to talk to you about a brand new family opportunity of building memories year round camper max specializing in max discounted pricing on travel trailers and fifth wheel RVs delivered anywhere in the lower 48. That's right. You can shop for your next opportunity from your office, your cell phone, or even your couch. And then the time you get out there and start enjoying the RVing lifestyle, well, click or call and find out how easy it is with camper max. Now, how easy is it? Well, the camper max discount will fit any budget. They offer easy financing with extended terms. It really is just too easy. Campermax.com. That's C A M P E R M A X X.com. Campermax with two X's.com or give them a shout. 256 320 7033. They are the home of the Max discount. It's ran and owned and operated by my longtime great close personal friend, Mr. Rod Wagner, who even Eric Bischoff has met before. And if you've heard of us taking a, a big bus or an RV to this event or that event, Rod made it happen for us and he'll make it happen for you. And if you're looking to purchase a motorhome, hang in there. My buddy Rod is working on that now. And I think he can even help you get out of your existing one. That's right. Camper Max based in Alabama can serve the entire 48. They will deliver it to you. They'll even pick up your old one. Get you some of that. Doesn't get any easier than Camper Max. See what they got and see how easy it can be for you when you work with great folks at Camper Max. C-A-M-P-E-R-M-A-X-X.com. Or give them a shout 256-320-7033. And you just want to be sure to mention my name. If you'll just say Conrad sent me, they're going to give you that friend of a friend deal. You don't want to miss that. It's campermax.com and be sure to mention my name, Conrad, and they're going to get you taken care of. It's too bad. We didn't have camper max way back then for Jr. So you could have sent him packing, but at least he would have got a good deal. And we could have put his like little refrigerator and all that shit. See? We could put it right in his camper max. Bam. And we could have just hooked it up to the back of whatever he was driving. I think he had a Lexus or something at that time. He could have just Beverly Hillbilly his way up to Connecticut. Like I did back in 2019 and, and been happy camper, literally a happy happy camper, literally CamperMax.com. Shout out to those folks. Uh, let's talk about what could have been. We know you're going to get your hands on the gig and your first order as you just admitted here in a loud and clear voice. I couldn't wait to fire Jim Ross. Uh, I mean, that's exactly what you said. If anyone was listening, they heard that come through loud and clear. But you know what I, Conrad, I should, and I don't know where you're going with this, but I, I would be, I just want to be clear. I was an advocate for taking Jim off of play by play. You thought I did it feel sounded that, too regional. Felt, huh? Sounded too regional. That, that was a big part of it. But the other part of it was to me, it's like, okay, we have a chance now to wipe the slate clean to hit reset. I get it. Yes. And, and I thought if we want to change the perception of WCW, because the perception was of WCW is that we were the number two wrestling company in the world. We might as well have been number 222 in terms of actuals, revenue, attendance, all that. Right. So, I looked at it as an opportunity to do two things. One is let's in a dramatic way that the audience is going to recognize immediately. Let's change the look and feel of our show. And that sometimes includes changing announcers. doesn't mean they're not good announcers. Just means you need to freshen something up and make people go, Oh, that's different. Let me check this out. 
It's a little thing. But I did believe that WCW was perceived by the advertising community, the business of the wrestling business. We were to them number two, you know, wrestling fans, oh, they're the number two wrestling company in the world. That sounds really good. In the business to business community, we might as well have been number 222. And that's what we had to change. Right. And we did feel too regional because we were, for all intents and purposes, we were a Southeastern regional promotion. Yes, it was available in California. Yes, you could, some people in other states could find it. Wasn't saying it didn't exist, but it's predominant footprint. People, the audience that watched it was predominantly in the Southeast, East and the Southeast. And I wanted to change that and get a less distinctively a WCW voice attached to it. Now, yes, Ross did have that kind of Southern Oklahoma accent. And yes, that is something I wanted to change, but it, in all likelihood, I would have brought Ross back at some point in time in that role. But at that point in time, I felt like we needed to make that change. But that had nothing to do with firing him. Let's talk a little bit about what could have been. You know, I, I love to take a look back and, and say the hypotheticals and the what ifs and all that jazz. And I talked to David Crockett a lot this past year, the last two years, rather. Uh, two years ago, Tony Schiavone and I just went episodically through Jim Crockett Promotions weekly television for a whole year. And then of course this year, I, uh, I spent a lot of time with him working on our, our big event in Nashville over the summer. And so we've become pretty good friends and he was pretty candid in having a conversation with me once about the time when Bill Watts has shown the door and WCW is looking for new leadership. Allegedly there's a conversation where I think a lot of people assume it's going to be David Crockett and Keith Mitchell, uh, as, as potential, um, new leaders of the outfit and operation because they understood television and wrestling and all that jazz. Of course, Keith had cut his teeth out at world-class and was really an innovator in a big way and, and was the apple of the, the wrestling business eye when it came to the way wrestling was presented on television. He brought that expertise to WCW and then, well, we know he was with AEW and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. David Crockett though, is a guy who, you know, was wrestling family business of sorts. And I think Mr. Shaw was pretty upfront with David and saying, love to have you have a lot of confidence in you, believe in you, but your last name's Crockett. So that's going to be tough. What do you think wrestling would have looked like? Had you not got the opportunity to lead it and perhaps Keith Mitchell got it because Keith Mitchell is a guy that is universally loved and respected. But he's always kind of been the behind the scenes guy, but anybody who works with him talks about what a genius he was. And I can't help, but wonder what would that have looked like? At least in your opinion, I too have a ton of respect for Keith always have had a ton of respect for Keith, probably more so now or over the last 10 years. than even before Keith is a very underestimated, uh, underappreciated professional in, in the industry. But I'm not sure that Keith has or had the willingness to take risks 
outside of the normal course of the wrestling business, which is what WCW desperately needed at that time. And, and again, there's, you have to really try to put yourself in WCW at that particular moment, which is hard for anybody to do if you weren't already there and kind of could understand it all. But because of the Watts disaster, yeah, because of the feeling within Turner Broadcasting about WCW as a result of the Watts disaster, because according to Bill Shaw, Ted has made up his mind that unless WCW turned a profit, which by the way, I forgot to leave out when I was talking about Bill's initial meeting with WCW, Bill made it clear if this company doesn't figure out how a way to turn a profit, Ted is going to pull the plug. So far up until that point, Ted was the only reason the plug hadn't been pulled. Every time somebody above WCW reached for the plug to pull it, Ted would step in and slap their hand away because Ted liked it for his own reasons. But when Bill Shaw said, unless you can figure out a way to make a dollar profit with this company, we're not, Ted's going to pull the plug. So the clock was ticking back in 1992. And I'm not sure that Keith, Keith's instincts would have led him to some of the decisions that I made. Right. What's the first one? Going to Disney MGM Studios. That was, that was not consistent with anybody's ideas who was in the wrestling business. What do you mean you want to produce a wrestling show in front of a fake crowd in a soundstage? Are you nuts? The only person that didn't think I was nuts was Dusty and David Crockett, by the way. Very supportive. Um, but I don't think Keith would have gone there. I think Keith would have probably stayed in a more traditional lane and would have made great improvements and would have definitely done a great job with television production, probably a better job than I did truthfully, because he was more experienced than I was at the time in that role as executive producer. But I don't think he would have gone outside the lines the way I did. And going outside the lines was absolutely what Turner needed yes. to, to breathe new life into WCW. It, it, it took, I don't want to put myself over like this, but it took me and my weird way of thinking or somebody else like me with an equally weird way of thinking. When I say weird, I mean outside of the box thinking about what to do with WCW in order to, to give Ted the confidence to keep his hand off the plug, to give hope. Why keep it? Well, we're going to Disney MGM studios. And by the way, all of our ad sales people in New York really love that. Because now when they're pitching WCW, it's from the mouse ears. And we've got that open from Disney MGM. All of a sudden, we're not coming to you from a darkened little arena in the middle of nowhere, Mississippi, with 40 people around the ring, half of whom are sleeping, the other half are getting drunk. All of a sudden, now we've got families and we can turn up the lights. And it's not perfect at all, but it was a big improvement. And from a cost production point of view, Initially, yes, it was more expensive than typically going out and producing four weeks of TV because we were gang shooting 13, 16, 18 weeks of TV, whatever it was, 13 or 14 weeks at a time sometimes. But the economies of scale actually made that work because we weren't flying people all over the country 52 weeks a year. So there were things that 
my approach, while they didn't make sense to the Dave Meltzers of the world and even most of the people that were actually in the business, not just on the outside looking in, um, there was a lot of decisions I made that were like, why would you do that? That's a dumb idea. But to the people that mattered the most at that particular time, namely Ted and, and the business to business community, we were making the right moves. I don't know that Keith would have done that. Well said, let's, uh, let's do a few fan questions. Then we'll wrap this one up. We're going to leave, uh, the move up to executive producer for another time. Uh, here's a really fun question. Mr. William on Twitter wants to know what was the first big thing you bought for yourself, your wife, and your family after getting that promotion, a new house. <laughs> uh, yeah. When, when I was asked to move to Atlanta, you know, I was like, cause up to that point, we didn't, you know, <laughs> I've bounced off the bottom a number of times throughout my life. And my inclination is not when things turn around to go out and just all of a sudden make up for lost time. So we, we paid off bills and done all the right things that we should have done. And it wasn't until I was asked to move before I made any kind of an expenditure. Here's one, uh, two count Kyle says, uh, Eric, you've said, uh, quite a lot that you never struggled with self-confidence, but. Was there ever a time leading WCW that you thought, man, I don't know if I can do this, even if it was only fleeting or was it always just attack, attack, attack? No, that's throughout my career. And I've talked about it on numerous times. Perhaps this person hasn't heard it or read it, but I mean, there were times throughout, and not because I lack confidence, by the way, maybe because I was overconfident, that would probably be arguable. Um, there were times when I was wanting to leave because of the situation. Um, you know, Bill Watts, as we've talked about, you know, back in 1998, you know, I talked about this. I, I know we're wrapping up. I'm going to save this for another day, but you know, I, I mentioned on Chris Van Bleet show, um, that'll hopefully it's either aired or will shortly. Um, there was a point in 1998, WCW's rocking and rolling, making money hand over fist. We're doing great. We're on top of the ratings. Everything is wonderful. And I got called into a meeting that I knew nothing about by Harvey Schiller and uh, Turner Broadcasting's general counsel at that time. And they told me something, explained something to me that just, it took a big chunk of my soul and, and hit me hard, not like depressed and sad, but it, radically changed my relationship with Turner Broadcasting, not just with WCW, but with Turner Broadcasting. And we'll get into it another time because I know we're wrapping it up. And this is a pretty interesting and long story. But that, that was a time when I was, I, and, I, and I'm mad at myself for not leaving because I think it would have probably changed my career for the better had I left when my instincts told me it's time to go, but I let my nature take over my nature being number one loyalty. I had a contract said I was going to do something. I'm not the guy that's going to go. I don't like it anymore. I'm not, it's not how contracts work. And I wish I wouldn't have listened to that side of myself, but 
there was another time, but it wasn't because of lack of confidence, frustration. Yes. Lack of hope in, in the people around me. Sure. But I'm, I just, I, I don't like quitting things, anything. Great episode today. Greatly appreciate all your candor and being so open and discussing sort of the nitty gritty of things that we've never talked about before, but before we get out of here and boy, I hate to end on this, but you brought it up. So I feel like I got to circle back because we did get a question about it. And this question comes to us from drew Landry, friend of the show, always bringing the good questions. Appreciate your participation on social media with every topic, but drew says, can't believe I'm saying this out loud either. Ric Flair consistently says, and even recently told Conrad on their podcast that it was him who got you your spot in WCW. How do you respond? Now I just want to state in a loud and clear voice here that the first time Ric Flair was ever acknowledged on WCW programming in 1993 was the February 8th taping of Saturday night from center stage in Atlanta. You don't, I don't believe he's there. Uh, but if he is. We're just at least discussing, you know, we're trying to get Bill Watts to comment or, or not Bill Watts, but Barry Windham to comment about Ric Flair. And of course, Missy Hyde is looking for the scoop about Ric Flair. And it's much later in, into, into the super brawl pay-per-view towards the end of February of 93, before we actually confirm, Hey, Ric Flair is back in WCW. The big shakeup with, with Watts happens February 2nd. And, uh, everybody is notified of these changes on the 10th and the 12th. So it's unlikely in my opinion, that Rick could have made a recommendation on the eighth and perhaps you get the gig and everybody knows on the 10th and 12th, that seems like the timeline doesn't match up. Is there anything else to say about Ric Flair getting your job in WCW? I think it's I think the timeline is pretty obvious. I, the, the only conversation that I had with Ric Flair um, from the time I first met Rick in Anderson, South Carolina, the day before he left and the time he came back, I had one conversation and that was the one I had with him in Anderson. I had never had a conversation with Ric Flair beyond that until after he came back to WCW. So, I've never under, and I've heard Rick say this, you know, even recently, like he's angry that I, I haven't acknowledged the fact that he was the one that got me my job when if nothing, it's not true. And, and I don't think Rick's saying, in fact, it's kind of surprised me that Rick would give a damn, given his feelings about me. Why would you want to take credit for that? Right. 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 <laughs> so, so you're the bastard that brought him in, you know, he's on you, but no, nothing could be further from the truth. It is, that process that took place before I was actually before from the time that Watts was fired and the time that I was actually given the job, um, Rick was nowhere to be found. And I had never had one conversation. He didn't know me. He probably doesn't even remember saying hello to me backstage in Anderson, South Carolina. At that point, I was, I had the job before Rick came back. I was given the job. I, I was told I was going to get the job before it was announced on the 10th. So how could Rick have recommended and gotten me that job considering he didn't even know me at the time. Right. And I had already gotten the job before he got, before he came back. It's weird, but whatever, whatever. Um, indeed. We're going to get to the bottom of a lot of other controversy 48 hours from now, 
this Wednesday, right after AEW Dynamite. Join Nick Patrick and Eric Bischoff over at adfreeshows.com. I'm going to moderate a discussion about Starcade 1997, and you don't want to miss it. We're calling it the Fast Count. I also want to give a, a quick plug here for the great book that Eric Bischoff has out there right now that everybody's talking about. You can pick it up over on Amazon. It's simple. Go to amazon.com, type in grateful Eric Bischoff. Bam. There it is. Uh, and you see the, uh, the lovely cover there with, uh, Mrs. B and Nikki. It's, uh, it's the book that I've given a lot over the holiday season. And I have yet to hear one negative review. Even if you check out the reviews over on Amazon, it's like, 85% five stars folks dig it. You will too. I greatly appreciate your support here on the show. If you haven't already hit the subscribe button, you're going to get blessed with little bonus episodes of strictly business every single week. Uh, throw us a like, leave us a five star. If you think we've earned it, we'd appreciate it. And we'd love to have your interaction on Twitter. He is at E Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And our show is on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at 83 weeks, but perhaps the best way to introduce the wrestling fan in your life to our show is on our YouTube. It's 83 weeks on youtube.com. Just type that into your browser, 83 weeks on youtube.com and hit the subscribe button. Uh, you're going to see, uh, some new stuff popping up in the new year. That's exclusive to YouTube. You don't want to miss it. 83 weeks on youtube.com is where you can find it. Be sure to not only hit the subscribe button, but hit the notifications bell. And I hope that, uh, folks are paying attention today and maybe they're going to get out of their comfort zone and they're going to say, Hey, why not? And what's the worst thing that could happen? Let's try. That's the story of Eric Bischoff. And, uh, I, I appreciate the time today, man. This has been a fun year doing this show with you and I can't wait for a big 2023 together. Thank you, Conrad. I, I, I love doing the show with you. Uh, I've grown to have nothing but love and respect for you and, and, and me and, and the rest of your family who I've gotten to know over the the course of this year in particular, um, you guys have helped me out. You know, I'm, I'm, the show has helped me out not only financially, but just having the ability to have these conversations in a fun and positive way has uh, has made a big difference in my life. And I also want to thank the entire team. I, I suck at this sometimes, but you guys have worked so hard to help promote the book and you, things that you said, you know, we have these, bonuses at the end of each chapter in the book it's a qr code and if you go it's first book i think that's ever been published that has this by about the way. that yeah but you you go to the qr code and there's exclusive video content interviews with people who were a discussion point within the previous chapter it's a very cool thing and i went through it for the first time just the other day you know i read the book but i i, I for whatever reason i hesitated to look at those interviews because i i, I don't know it's sometimes awkward when I hear people say positive things, maybe I've gotten so used to hearing negative things. It's sometimes hard for me to hear things that are positive, but the things that you said and, and Lex Luger and, and Amanda, the young lady that I met at the sting Hulk Hogan, comic-con uh, panel, just so many good things. And none of that would be happening if it wasn't for you and the entire team podcast seat at free shows. So thank you. Thank you, man. And, uh, thanks Steve Kaufman for helping run our show and producing our show today. And, uh, this has been a fun show, man. I hate that this is our last one of 2022, but don't worry. We'll be back next week with a brand new year and a brand new episode of 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. 
John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.